We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVergilio. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast presented by BetUS. I'm Alan Williams. I'm here with James DiVergilio. Coming to you on a Monday evening, the Gators have a new football coach. Life is looking up. Getting ready for the Christmas season. James, I know you love this time of year. How are you doing over there, buddy? I do love this time of year. I spend far too many hours <laughs> uh, with friends that come over and help you, being one of them, Alan, yeah. to decorate my house. It sort of is like the Christmas hangout here in Gainesville. There's seemingly 15 to 20 people over the house every night, which I love and cherish and enjoy. Uh, but it is a busy season and a fun season, which is true of Florida football right now, right? It, it's This either can be for your school sort of the wind-down period, or it's the total ramp-up period, as we heard from one Billy Napier in his press conference yesterday. As always, Alan, if you like the content this December on this podcast, follow us on social media, sub to our YouTube channel, where I will be doing a film breakdown sometime this week on Billy Napier's offense based upon that Louisiana and App State game, as well as giving you some insights into it. And as always, consider becoming a patron on Patreon, where you can drop us one dono, two, 10, 20. However many donos you want to drop us, you can do it. Uh, as always, shout out here to B-Red and Bama Shane. It's been a great season. Thanks to both of them allowing us to provide you with Indeed. this wonderful content. So last week, Alan, we had a level up to the large dono category from Michael Guju. Thanks, Michael. Great talking with you on the messenger as well. And then Franklin Thrasher III comes in. It's a strong name. Coming in hot as a new patron. Welcome to the patron family, Franklin Thrasher III. And then a level up to the XL dono category from Mark Mitchell, giving that annually. Thanks so much, Mark. Appreciate all of your support throughout the years. Great to have you. And still on the throne is the big homie. Still sitting there enjoying himself, watching and presiding over the coaching hires, uh, the madness that has been the coaching carousel and everything else, having a good time, uh, again, over the GNFP throne. All right, let's talk about those donor legends here. Lil Payton, Constantine, Double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stash Me, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, 
Tim Kaine, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick, James Truett, Gus Earlier, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell. There you go, Mark Mitchell. Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeve, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Cooper and Kylie Craig, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Romery, Craig Scarado. Thanks to each and every one of you. And thanks to all of you for listening, making this a very Merry Christmas for the podcast. Yeah, as you said, James, fascinating time in Gator football. So much newness, news dropping every day. There's probably some news that's going to happen while we're recording this. But the big news last week that Florida does hire Billy Napier. And, you know, we left our kind of larger coaching search podcast coming away with. I We both preferred Billy Napier among all the candidates. He was our top choice. Florida goes out and immediately hires him. Then a lot of other things start, start happening kind of setting the college football world ablaze. Lots of talk since then, asking the question, should you have hunted for bigger game? Despite the fact they went out and got the guy that you and I both wanted, had a lot of questions. Should we have taken a look at some of these bigger names out there? Any buyer's remorse for you? No, no buyer's remorse. We discussed this on the pod. Billy Napier obviously was named the coach. We knew that. We discussed him as the coach. And then Allen... We sort of famously asked each other, well, who else would you want from the established coaching regime? We ruled out Lincoln Riley because Lincoln Riley was not coming to Florida for the same reasons he was not going to LSU. For the same reasons now that he's sitting even prettier, which we'll talk about at USC, than he was last week. So that was not going to happen. So there were reports that came out that Scott Strickland obviously could have talked to Lincoln Riley because Lincoln Riley was available. Certainly, Florida should have talked to Lincoln Riley if he was available. He was the best coach available. Talk to him. But again, pretty clear he chose not to be in the SEC. But that left us with other coaches that we named. One we didn't name was one Brian Kelly, who then, of course, broke as LSU's head coach maybe about 30 minutes after we finished recording our podcast, right. which was which was poor timing. Also kind of funny, we didn't mention Brian Kelly because it didn't seem like Brian Kelly would be A, a fit for the SEC and B, a guy who was available, but he was available. So that led to a flood of questions amongst our friends, amongst all of you on social media. Is Florida or was Florida aiming too small? Should we have been calling every sitting head coach? Should we have called Bill Belichick? Perhaps we should have hunted after him. But this idea that we answered on last week's pod, Alan, about hunting big game, we won't answer it again. We gave our answers. But given now what you've seen, I'm going to ask you the, the simple question. Would you rather have Brian Kelly than Brian Napier? I would. Billy. Billy Napier. Napier. Brian, Brian, Brian Napier B&D, is an interesting candidate. BKBN. Yeah. Uh, honestly, I think I'd rather have Napier. Now, Brian Kelly is has, of course, a much longer track record of success, has been a really great coach at a lot of places. Maybe I'm, like, kooky, or maybe I'm just drinking the Kool-Aid here, but I think if you're going to give me the choice, I'd hire Kelly. I think partly, too. You hire Kelly or Napier? Sorry. Don't worry. I called him I called him Brian Napier already. <laughs> we're on we're, our game we're off to a We're off to a postseason-like start here when Florida's <laughs> not in the postseason. I would rather have Billy Napier. Brian Kelly, if we had hired him, I'm sure I would talk myself into him. I think you just feel a little bit the narrative surrounding him. Not to like totally besperch his character, but there's just not a lot of good vibes around him. I'll say that. And 
I think from what I'm looking for for a Florida coach right now, I think Napier fits the bill a little bit better. I like his upside a little bit more. I think Brian Kelly will be successful at LSU. I don't know if he'll get them to the peak, but I, I don't think they're going to be bad. So I don't know. I it It's an interesting question. If you like Brian Kelly and prefer Brian Kelly, then you probably wish Florida would have called him. And maybe he would have taken that job. Now, again, he might have picked LSU or Florida. But I think the other side of that is we go chasing for some of these people. Maybe we miss out on Billy Napier because the process is wrong and he takes a different kind of job or whatever. Who knows, right? Um, so I wouldn't want to backtrack and lose him because I I think he's still my preferred candidate. And he actually has a real Southern accent and not a fake one. So that's a plus there. I think had we had we done the podcast immediately after the Brian Kelly news was released, Alan, we were able to pull all of our listeners, 10,000 or so of you. That's right, 10,000 or so of you out there across the world. If we had pulled you, I, I bet a decent amount of you would have probably felt like Brian Kelly was potentially a better hire. But then over the course of the week, it started to feel like Brian Kelly at LSU, although I have said and will say, on the testing and database metrics, excellent football coach. He is that. He's never coached in the South. He's not known as a recruiter. He's hired some excellent recruiters to be with him, none of which are coming with him to LSU, Allen. He debuts the Southern accent. The stories <laughs> come out about how he basically left Notre Dame, which was not good, not classy, not flattering. He's lying to the recruit he's with at the time when the news is breaking and he knows what's true. Those are very unflattering stories. On the flip side, every story that's come out about Billy Napier since Florida hired him has been nothing but positive. You can't find a single negative thing. Then he goes on to win his conference championship, back-to-back champs. Uh, You know, just seemingly effusive praise. The players love him. People love him. Now, that is not a barometer for whether or not you're going to win at this level. Again, Brian Kelly is more likely, probability-wise, Alan, to have more success. That he's more likely History given what we know, he's a longer right? track record, right? Now we can begin to argue what's the ceiling level of these coaches. I think Brian Kelly is very intriguing if he can get top five classes. Unfortunately for him, he lost Marcus Freeman, who was the engine that was driving those top five classes in Notre Dame. So time will have to tell here. I think that Brian Kelly is, again, culturally really not right, but he's an excellent football coach at a school where seemingly non-excellent football coaches have won. So... Sure. True. We should be worried about LSU. They're going to be a very good football team under Brian Kelly. I totally believe that to be true. But I'm with you, Alan. Despite the fact that I really respect Brian Kelly as a coach, I like the potential ceiling of a guy like Billy Napier. And that's what we said all along. I'm a ceiling higher guy. It's possible that he could flame out big time. This job could be too big for him. He could make bad choices. He might not be able to handle it. But his ceiling right now is as high as it can get given what he's accomplished at a school that has not had any history of success, given how everything else is trending along with other guys like him, and given he's known for his recruiting process. So those are all things that line up really, really well, whereas Brian Kelly, not a recruiter, a much better football coach. I mean, not saying he's better than Billy Napier, but that's kind of the MO. So I like the fit here. We'll see how it plays out. But obviously that was huge news of Brian Kelly leaving Notre Dame uh, and the Notre Dame now replacing him again with Marcus Freeman. So let's walk through. Well, just quickly on Napier, 
you mentioned this kind of in passing, but he said this in to his in his press conference, like if you want my resume, go talk to those guys that just left in Louisiana. Now it's not quite the same, right? I think they have a better understanding of why he would leave rather than the Notre Dame players. But I don't know that Brian Kelly would tell you to call his old players right now. And what kind of what they would say about him. Yeah. And that that's fair for you to say that you can't compare those two because no one that plays for Notre Dame is going to think that you should leave for anywhere else. And sure. Louisiana players understand that there's bigger programs out there than themselves. For sure. But I think you would still get a very different report. And again, that doesn't like buy you wins, but I do think it it's a part of what we're looking for probably as a program. Um and who you want repping you. Now, it's going to be interesting because these guys are going to be compared to one another because theoretically they could be have swapped spots. If Florida pursued Kelly or if LSU had just preferred Napier and that job wasn't available to Kelly, that there's an alternate universe where these guys are coaching the opposite programs. And until Texas, Oklahoma make their arrival, Florida's going to play LSU every year. So including next year. It's going to be an interesting narrative to follow between these two. And that is that is what we're going to finish that conversation with is the records will will say what happens. They're going to play each other. We're going to know. It's a direct head-to-head battle of, of again, I think Brian Kelly would have taken the Florida job in a heartbeat. Uh, you know, obviously friend of the program, Scott Strickland, I'm sure vetted him, looked at him, ruled him out. So, you know, you never know. Like we said, I want to keep saying this. Athletic directors don't know. You do not know right now at home. If you think you know, you don't know, right? You don't know who's going to be better. You could have reasons for why you think one is better than the other, and that's perfectly meritable. That's what we're discussing here. But you still don't know which one's going to work out better in the SEC. They're going to have to prove that, and we will see which hire is better. Two very different hires. It's going to be really fascinating stuff to watch that play out. This carousel has been insane, Alan. One of the craziest of all time absolutely insane let's walk through some of the stuff that's gone on here we've already talked about lincoln riley which i think you and i would both argue is by far the best hire from anyone this season that's a layup it's a no doubt no brainer that's number one we can debate number two three and four and five but let's give some grades as i give you these kind of snap reaction how you feel about it let's start with brian kelly what grade do you give that hire from lsu this is a tough one um this might just be sound too low but a b plus Right. I think of their available candidates, if you if you wanted a name candidate like seemingly like Scott Woodward wanted, it might have been the represent the top of that kind of tier. So in his mind, he's probably gives himself an A plus. I like you said, cultural fit, ceiling. I mean he's sixty years old rather than you know, Billy Napier's forty one. I think there's that weighing into the factor. It doesn't mean you can't be successful, obviously, at his age, but um I like the hire. I think they're gonna be good, as I said. It doesn't wow me, but I could be eating those words soon. Yeah, I think it's an A minus higher because Brian Kelly's gonna win at LSU. Again, we've we've covered it, right? If Les mm-hmm. Miles can win there, Ned Orgeron can win there, Brian Kelly's infinitely better than both of them are. Infinitely better. And by default, he's gonna have a top ten class, something he didn't always have in Notre Dame. He'll need a little better than that, obviously. If he can get himself with a recruiter that can really keep those recruits in the state, if he can resonate with SEC families. If he can create a pipeline to the NFL, then he can be in business. But he is in the SEC West. He is no longer coaching at independent Notre Dame where you're going to get Allen seven or eight games a year where you're favored. 
oftentimes by double digits. Now, they play a, an interesting schedule. Yeah, they play a good schedule. No shame to Notre Dame, but it's not the SEC, and everyone talks about the grind that occurs on a week-in, week-out basis on an SEC roster. It is just different. So that, I think, is a huge question mark for Brian Kelly. But I give it an A- minus because all of the verifiable data one can look at would suggest this is a very good football hire. And for that reason alone, I've got to give it that grade. All right, Oklahoma then, after losing Lincoln Riley, again, Oklahoma's been one of the most rock-steady football programs that there has been. We talked about this last week. They go out and they get a guy who a lot of people have wanted for a long time, Clemson's defensive coordinator, Brent Venables. How do you feel about this one? I'm going to give this one a B-plus, too, for different reasons. I, Brent Venables is really intriguing. I mean, he's taken a very non-traditional path here. He's been a coordinator for a really long time, a very high-end one. He knows Oklahoma. I think it's a great hire. And the only reason I would lower it slightly is because he's not been a head coach before, and that's a tough one to learn at at that level. And Lincoln Riley seemed to have no problem. Right. So here's what's funny about these coaching hires. These are just our impressions of what how we would think about them. Again, I think you would have probably given a meh to Lincoln Riley when he was hired. Like you just had no info about him. It was like, well, intriguing. Good trust, guy. You trusted Bob Stoops sure. saying this is the guy. But yeah, sure, you had no idea. You weren't like, oh, yes. No way. Not at all. Um, but I like it for them. I think it's a good fit for everybody. And yeah, just I don't know what his learning curve is going to be as a head coach. And that's a tough space to do that in. Not to say you can't do it. Yeah, it is tough. I'm going to I'm going to grade the higher based upon what I'm what I'm going to keep using the same rubric, which is what's the ceiling play? And then kind of what are the odds? So Venables has no testing, which we talked about that puts him automatically into the wild card category. But he is the top shelf of a wild card category. For sure. So that's a good hire, in my opinion. You could get Kirby Smart. You could get Will Muschamp. You don't know. Oklahoma doesn't know. But it's a good hire. I like the hire. Fits the culture. He's been there. They know him. He's a he's an Oklahoma family guy. I think it's a good hire. I think it's also a tough hire to transition yourself so significantly from an offensively identi- identity-based program to a defensive one. That is hard. That's a good point. For fans and for everyone else, because you do, they, I mean, they have gotten spoiled rotten by scoring a million points a game. And, and that perhaps Venables finds some OCs to do that, but more, more likely than not, it's going to look different than it has looked. But I like the hire a lot. I'm going to give it, you know, an A minus just because you can't, you can't know what he's going to be. You don't have the data, but also it's a really good culture fit for them. I, I couldn't see giving that anything less than that because it's just a great fit and it's a good shot to fire. All right, Notre Dame hires Marcus Freeman, yeah. who we tapped as our number one DC entering into last season. That's the one we wanted Florida to hire. It's funny because I think Florida could have had a shot at him had they even tried, which they didn't. We kept Grant them. He then very quickly gets elevated to the head coaching position of Notre Dame. Do you like this hire for Notre Dame? Coming off their most successful run ever as a program record-wise. I like it a lot for them. Obviously, you know, everything I said about Brent Venables applies here. This feels like even just a little higher ceiling for me. Um, And this is partly due to his knowledge of the current program, his connection there his reputation as a recruiter. I'll give this an A, considering where Notre Dame was. Um, and I think they're going to give him a long enough leash to figure this out. He's a young guy. He's super young. Yeah, he's very young. He's obviously an excellent, excellent defensive coordinator and a phenomenal recruiter. Right. Does that translate into being a head coach? I don't know. He's with Luke Fickle, who is lighting the world on fire as a head coach, building a coaching tree for himself. This one for me, 
I'm like right, I'm like right on the A minus B plus. And the only reason is I, I still really can't believe, and I understand the hurdles that existed, that Luke Fickle is not in this job. Which to me either means that Luke Fickle's not going to coach college football anymore. He's going to go to the NFL. Or he's going to stay at Cincinnati forever. But you can't win ever. He'll never win a title at Cincinnati. Never. And I mean never. So I don't understand what's happening. I understand the timeline. You can't hire a coach. You're going to miss all your recruiting window. But if there was ever one of the jobs Luke Fickle wanted, it's this one. And now his his assistant who he taught takes that job. That was like the A++++++ hire for Notre Dame. That was like a shoe-in winner. This is a good one. I don't know who else they're going to get. Like you mentioned, it preserves the culture. The players love him. And also, they're about to sign a top five recruiting class entirely due to him. Yeah, and they, they so keep that, their... That is like recruiting. We talk about it. You have to recruit. So I think that was all really wise. I just, I'm, I'm dropping it emotionally because it's like, man, it felt like that was the marriage. This was what Notre Dame's wanted. They wanted Urban Meyer, couldn't get him. Now all of a sudden, Luke Fickle, a guy who grew up in Catholic school, a guy who's that guy, they didn't get him. It feels a little... Feels a little unfortunate, I guess. It feels like behind closed doors, that's who they really would have wanted. But now they've got Marcus Freeman, and obviously we'll see what he does. So this is the problem with this cycle. I mean, obviously Notre Dame didn't make any of these choices, right, in terms of lose. They didn't fire their coach. But but they're kind of working on LSU cycle, who did fire their coach. You know, they keep their young OC, uh, Tommy Reese, I don't know. I, I don't know what else they could have done unless secretly Luke Fickle signs a contract with you. I mean, you can't hire him. He's not going to commit to the job until after the playoff. And then you're probably going to lose Freeman. He's going to move to LSU. Like he's not going to stay put there. I don't think. And that was the poison pill, right? Is like, I think if Freeman knows that Fickle's coming, he's loyal to Fickle. He's not loyal to to Kelly, but if he doesn't know and weeks go by and the LSU job, which is a humongous job, they're going to pay you top dollar to be there yep. is available. Then Notre Dame loses everything. Mm-hmm. So I think like what you're saying, stewardship wise is an A plus hire. They were stuck in a corner in a scenario where it was like, if we don't do something, this could go way against us. It's just that they miss on, I think their optimal path, which would have been Luke fickle. That's that was the shoe. And like, if he doesn't make the playoff, that's gotta be the hire. Right, and I think this is weird. This will be a turning point in Luke Fickle's life. Maybe his greatest success is the thing that like stabbed because the, that was always the job he wants. Notre Dame, Ohio State, Penn State. I don't know. I mean, unless Ryan Day leaves for the NFL, I mean, Penn State kind of crazily locked up Franklin for another decade. And now you've got a young guy, Marcus Freeman, there at Notre Dame. Who, Like I said, I think they're going to have to give him a long leash to figure this out. They're not going to fire him in a year or two unless they're just – catastrophically bad you're maybe it's Cincinnati or you're, you're taking a job that's not one of those three and that's what's fascinating that's fascinating to me that that I think is one of the emerging storylines of this coaching cycle so we'll follow that one as well all right Miami today fires Manny Diaz something we thought may have happened but they did it with knowledge because immediately I mean immediately they hired one Mario well, this Cristobal. was the most awkward Thing out. I mean, they're basically just floating this for days where they're like, yeah, if we're going to hire Crystal Ball or if not, we're going to keep Manny Diaz. You know, they give away one kind of favored son for another. And I guess Miami is making commitments to larger infrastructure and finances to lure Crystal Ball here. 
I mean, this is, I think, the best hire Miami could possibly make. So I think Cristobal had other jobs. Fine, good. This is an A+. If he's going to recruit Miami, this is a real negative for Florida, by the way. If he's going to just lock the door in South Florida and turn that into a juggernaut, I mean, he just has to coach at like a minimal level to be extremely competitive because I think they're going to be incredibly talented really quickly. Yeah, this is an A with like 600 pluses behind it, and it's it's like a it's like the dark timeline for Florida, right? So this is why Lincoln Riley went out to the Pac-12, and then he gets a gift by losing the only other person that can even remotely recruit. Yep. So now Lincoln Riley, you can pretty much pencil him in. He's going to make the playoffs for the rest of his life in USC unless they leave that conference. I mean, mark it down right now, starting in year two. We'll give him one year. He'll make the playoffs every year there without question. No one to challenge him. He will just crush everybody. That's what he wanted. That's what he thought about. That's what he did. And now Florida, that sucks. It sucks. Cristobal's not a great football coach. He's just not. He's an unbelievable recruiter. And as we've seen with guys like Butch Davis, who's an average football coach, phenomenal recruiter. Cristobal is like the favored son of favored sons in Miami. And he knows Miami. He played there, obviously. I mean, this just has to be like the dream fit. Now, obviously Miami has some problems to overcome. They have issues. They have infrastructure issues, but it doesn't matter. He's recruiting at a school that doesn't have those issues in the top three in Oregon. But if you awaken the Miami talent pool and they stay there and they stay at home, they don't go to Alabama. They don't go to other schools. You're automatically a top five team. Because again, look at the per capita players. There are more players in the NFL from that region of the country than anywhere else. Period. So that, sucks for Billy Napier and for Florida. There's no easy way to say it. Right. Without Cristobal there, if Manny Diaz stays there, you're thinking, look, nobody wants to play there anyway. This is not a problem. But Cristobal is going to recruit. Miami is going to recruit now in the top seven. It's going to happen every single year. And that is a game changer. Again, it's a game changer for Florida recruiting. There's plenty of players to go around. Yes, that's true. But if you're the Florida coach, you'd love to have a pipeline to South Florida. You do not want to have a Miami. That's you don't want to be fighting those guys. And Florida will still probably take some guys from South Florida. Of course I they mean, will. Sure. But also, you know what? This does hurt Alabama, Ohio State. This hurts everybody else who recruits there, too. Yeah, because everyone's been able to take what they want for quite some time now. But I think that's going to stop. Uh, that's the way Cristobal has been. It's what he's done everywhere he's been. And that's why Miami was so willing to basically publicly say, hey, Manny, we love you and all. But like you got your shot. And I understand that. Look, Manny did get his shot. They gave Manny a shot. He was going to coach Temple. Now he was there. If I'm Manny, I can't be upset about this. And then for Cristobal, again, there's there's so many coaching questions to answer for him. He's, he gets waxed in a lot of big, important games he's playing. It's teams that are less talented. But if you're Miami, you've been off the grid for a long time now, and you know that talent will put you in the conversation, and talent is what they're going to have. So that's a great hire. And it'll be interesting to see who Oregon hires, because I do think they can bring somebody in there to compete with Lincoln Riley if they hire the right guy, obviously. They, they're going to have to. now. They, that, right. That's what's interesting about competition, right, is now, not that Oregon would have thought differently, but if you're Oregon now, you know you have a looming giant in USC. And you have got to get somebody that's willing to step up to that challenge. And that is going to be a serious, serious challenge because USC has significant advantages over Oregon in that conference, right? So we have UVA's Bronco Mendenhall. This was very surprising. Just sort of shock steps down to step away from football. Meanwhile, his wife is like, no, don't step away from football. I want you to stay in football. And Bronco's like, well, I want to spend more time with my wife and family. Interesting situation, but he's out at UVA. So that's an open job, but that's a guy who was a nice hire, I thought, for UVA. Didn't wind up 
producing maybe as much as UVA would have wanted, but also had some really high highs. Higher than UVA's normal. As, like, correct. So it was it was good. It was fine. Line. They weren't going to get rid of him for sure, but maybe not as high as he wanted to go. Either way, some soul searching going on there. Not sure what's going to happen. I think he's only 55, Allen, so he's got you know a, a career in front of him, but he's out. That's a job that's open. Yeah, so this feels like the, you know, Peterson resigning at Washington, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of two really interesting guys, different guys in terms of like the coaching profile. And so it doesn't shock me that he would do this one. It's surprising, of course, but when you look at him individually, you go, okay, well, he's not cut from the same cloth as some of these other guys. So it makes a little more sense. And, you know, I hope it goes well for him. Now, here comes the less notable ones. Okay. Brent Pry. Who, you say? Who is that guy? That's Penn State's defensive coordinator right. going to Virginia Tech. How do you grade this one? I think I'll give it a B to B minus, right? So I don't know. This is a hard one. I looked at him when I was doing a preliminary search for defensive coordinators. Obviously, Penn State's defense has been really excellent at time this season. I don't <laughs> I don't know anything about him. I didn't look at him past a cursory look at some of their statistics, but I don't think it's a bad hire. I mean, maybe if I was a Vatek fan, I was looking at closely, I might feel either way better or way worse. Um, Vatek is interesting. feels like they could have had somebody a little more high profile. And again, the guy that I would have loved to hire if I'm a school at that stature is Jamie Chadwick. That's what I was thinking. That's what he that's hasn't gotten opinion. hired. And maybe there's something else going on here. But, man, I want to take a, a swing at that guy who could be just a potential home run. And if he flames out, I don't. I don't know that anybody's going to kill you for hiring him. So, I don't know. Yeah, at least they had reason to hire Brent Pry. The the thought is that he recruits that area of the country very well. True. And so I like the reasoning. But Virginia Tech is still a a, a high-ish program. That, I don't know, that feels a little reachy. So I'm going to give that like a C plus because I like that they're nodding to the recruiting. I think you have to do that. But, I mean, perhaps there could have been somebody that would have fulfilled that and a little bit more. Time will tell. Again, time will tell. You never know. Washington hires Fresno State's coach. I like this hire a yes. lot. We've talked about Fresno State's consistency as a program. Um, Kalen DeBoer, who's who's really like a, a kind of a, I don't want to say Dan Mullen, that's a bad thing now, but a quarterback whisperer of sorts moving to Washington. I think this is a great hire for Washington. What do you think? Yeah, I'm going to give it a B, B plus. I yeah. mean, Washington's still a school that could hire a high-profile guy. And again, I feel like I'm parroting the narrative here. We should aim for... You know, bigger game, you know, bigger fish. I think it's good. Um, He's won everywhere. He's been even down to NAIA. I was reading a little bit about him. Very intriguing hire for them. I think they're going to be successful. Um, My questions are, again, I don't know a lot about him recruiting and some other things like that, but I think they're going to be a really competent team. And I think that's the thing. If you're Washington, and this is what's tough about the West Coast teams right now, is because the conference has not been good, you do not have a plethora of assistants or up-and-coming people that are there. You are talent poor. And that's tough to hire people because you're you're not gonna you're not gonna get a guy who's been coaching like a Billy Napier in the SEC and in the South to ever move out there and really take it um as like an assistant to that level. So if you look at who they hire, they try to hire West Coast guys who have some experience out there, or they try to pluck a bigger name, obviously Lincoln Riley in this case. Oregon's gonna try to do the same thing. And if you're Washington, you're kind of just a little behind it. But this is sort of like a Chris Peterson hire where he was obviously fine at Washington, right? You're taking a, an established program builder, a guy who's coached in the West Coast pretty much his entire life, and you're maybe doing a little bit of a reset where it's like, hey, the worst case scenarios are probably still competitive. 
and maybe we find a better name that fits at that time. They just hired the assistant that pretty much every Washington fan loved in Jimmy Lake. They loved right. that guy, and he was a cataclysmic flameout. So this is why hiring coaches is hard. Like You would have had a hard time finding people who didn't like the Jimmy Lake hire, and he was awful. You can't know, but this one is the guy who has been very successful everywhere he's been, which leads you to believe he's going to put a competent program in place. Can he recruit well enough? That's always going to be the yeah, question. Yeah, and I think here's the question for these. I mean, Seattle still has some talent. There's a lot of really talented players who've been in the Seattle area the last couple of years, and I think Washington got like none of them or almost none of them. And that kills you if you think you hire a recruiter in Jimmy Lake and he doesn't get those guys. So you just feel like, what are you, what, what are you even here for? Yeah, um, what's happening, right? All right, here's the head-scratching yeah. and fun one. UConn, who's been the doormat of all doormats. Just, uh, almost like it's stopped playing football, seemingly. They have. And this feels like a splash hire. It is yeah. a splash hire. They pick up Jim Mora, who at one point in time was an NFL coach that was like the rising superstar. And he's fallen so far off the horse that now he's picked up by UConn. But we're talking about on the show, which means it clearly made some sort of splash. Yeah. I mean, I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, it feels so weird. Just like UConn is going to hire. They'd be the type to hire like. I've literally never heard of this person because they can't get anybody else to come there. So, I mean, he's obviously a competent football coach. So, at, at least for UConn's level. Yeah, that's a great hire for UConn. Yeah. I mean, Jim Mora's, you know, he's had highs everywhere he's been. Highs at UCLA. And the program yeah. kind of wanes and fades away. He can't seem to keep it going. Things seem to kind of, like, get lit on fire. But when the program's already in the dumpster fire, he can't take it any lower. So, perhaps he takes it higher. We'll see. All right, so that's that. We wanted to open the show with the coaching carousel. There's more stuff going on, more coaches, of course, you know, being hired, fired, retained. But we figured let's just talk about that because that's going to lead us now into obviously who Florida hired. We're going to start here with the Billy Napier press conference that occurred yesterday, Alan. Billy's our coach. We kind of went through what we want to keep him. It seems like you and I obviously would both take Lincoln Riley over Billy Napier. We're not going to take Brian Kelly over Napier, but I think that's a very coin flippy time will tell decision. Right. And, and leaving Lincoln Riley is not like a slam dunk. He's going to crush it at Florida. Like, I think he'd do really well, but you're not, you're not, you don't have zero doubts about him. I, I would certainly, he has the least risk. Of course, I have to be honest and be like, yeah, the, we can make a trade right now. I think I would take. Yeah, I'd Lincoln make the Riley. trade. I, I mean, would yeah. you trade Brian Kelly? You as listener base and Alan and I and everyone else, you could have a nuanced discussion back and forth for days about there's there's pros and cons on either side's ledger. And that's mm-hmm. what we're saying. So I think that's fair. That would tell you that in good faith, you really can't definitively say that one is better than the other one. There are other reasons why you might take one over the other. So Billy Napier comes in. Let's talk about the press conference here, Alan. First, I want to start by saying something about this coaching hire. We talked a lot about this last week. And a lot of people picked up on the fact that I was saying it's the most excited I've been since Urban Meyer. And they're like, wow, that seems like a reach or a stretch or this guy's unproven. Well, you know, we discussed why I thought that wasn't the case last week. But then this week, coming into the press conference, I wanted to see what Billy Napier was going to say. And you can't win games in a press conference. But Florida's had a couple of coaches in a row now that have been just not good at articulating seemingly anything that was coherent or cohesive or inspired confidence. So... We get the Napier press conference. I'm watching on YouTube. I'm like anxiously awaiting. What is this guy going to say? What's he really going to do? What's really in his mind? What's he thinking? Right. And for me, and we're going to kind of talk about the goods and the bads, but overall for me, it was, it was excellent. It nailed so many things I look for that matter to me and how a coach thinks and, and describes things. 
How did it feel for you? I really like him. He's not the most compelling personality in terms of, I don't know, you know who I'd like pick. Charisma. Yeah, yeah, charisma. He's not like going to light, light up. He's not a Steve Spurrier in the, in the podium where you're dying for every word he's going to say. Yes. Right. Yeah, like a total character, right? Yep. But he does seem really genuine mm-hmm. and uh, humble, I guess, is a word I can use for a D1 co- football coach. But the stuff that comes out about him is that how detail-oriented and how process-oriented he is. And he feel like he already has a plan for everything. He kind of, people would ask him about him. He would share a little bit. Obviously, not going to detail a crazy giant plan in a press conference. But just even peeking at that kind of stuff that he's very prepared. Like, he's been preparing for this for a long time. This wasn't like, oh, now I have the Florida job. What do I do? Now, there's going to be some stuff left to change. But he already has a plan in place that he can iterate off of and improve upon that he's already been working on. And I think he knows what he needs, right? They pushed the envelope on a couple things that I think Florida's law needs to do. You can't really know the outcome of this, but bigger support staff, more analysts, more uh, recruiting staff, bigger, you know, kind of budget for those people, bigger budget for on field. Now we've, we spent money on field, but we haven't spent the money behind the scenes. And I think that was part of his deal coming. And I, as he said in the press conference, it's not, it wasn't like he had to pry it from Scott Strickland's cold hands, right? Um, I think he's ready for this as he can be, just from him talking, right? And that's all I can know. We'll see it on the field. But it didn't feel like it was too big for him. It felt like he was ready for it. Yeah, I love that he is a systematic thinker. That is obviously, obviously something that's near and dear to my heart as an entrepreneur who started my own investment firm. As doing a lot of things in my life that requires systematic process-based thinking, which ultimately, Alan, is just a feedback loop. And the thing I liked from him the most was when he would answer questions and then eventually arrive, and I think he said this at least three times, I feel like the process is better this year than it was last year. I feel like there's things we've learned. And that tells you that there is an engine and a rubric that is not just, we're going to do this and we're good that you're tweaking and you're, and you're navigating and you're twisting and you're learning. Okay, that didn't work. That did work. Okay, we can fix this. We can do better here. And that's the exact kind of thinker that I am definitely biased towards having as a head coach in that CEO role. He also mentioned things like a championship mentality. I mean, directly. It was almost like he's been <laughs> yeah. listening to the podcast, right? That's the thing we bang the drum on, this championship mentality. But he talked about it. And then all in all, as you said, he feels like a very genuine guy. Like when he says, hey... That's my wife and I love her. You believe it. It seems like it's real. It's not just Urban Meyer coach speak. that This is the greatest city in the history of the world. And I love being here. He says that about everywhere. It feels like he really means the things that he says. And if you look at the people that he's left behind him, the players, the coaches, the administrators, they love him. They, they miss him, right? So I think that means he's genuine. He's not just a guy that's making stuff up. And now, that's nice. It doesn't get you wins, but it's nice. It's a nice bonus on a guy who's systematic. And obviously, it's no secret he fancies himself as a merger between Saban and Dabo. That's what he is, right? And Dabo, obviously, a masterful culture-building guy. And then Nick Saban, the ultimate process guy. And he's in between. Now, can he can he emerge to become his own guy? Like you heard him say, you can, you can see it in interviews. Alan, he kind of talks about how it's maybe 80 85% Dabo and Saban. And 15% him. He's tweaked some things and learned some things. And that's what innovation looks like, by the way. You stand on the shoulders of someone else, and then you begin to make your own improvement. So everything in there was really, really great. I thought it was very, very clean. And when someone asks you a question, you want to have an answer that makes sense. And he did everything. Now, 
couple of things that got the Twitter sphere rising. One thing that got me to be like, oh, didn't love that line, which should not surprise most of you, was the comment on how stars did not matter. Four and five stars, what matters is our evaluation. Of course, we all know, as Tyler Romery says, Alan, that I am a stargazer. I'm all about stars. If I was a coach, <laughs> I'd be chasing stars left and right. Now, you have to find the right stars that fit into your system, which is what I really think Billy Napier is saying. This is a very different comment. I want to calm all of you down. Very different comment coming from a guy who's known as a top-level recruiter than it is when it comes from a guy like Dan Mullen. When it comes from Dan Mullen, it's, I don't want to recruit, and I don't really care. Coming from Billy Napier, it's, hey, we have a process that we follow to recruit players. Right. And no coach, no coach, including Nick Saban, likes the recruiting services. They don't like them. A lot of people don't like them in general. They still, in my opinion, tend to work in the aggregate. So coaches aren't going to want to just be like, I'm going to follow what the five-star recruiting list says and pick up those guys. But don't worry yourself. This guy is a top-shelf elite recruiter who is going to get the best players possible. So that comment's not going to be what we've heard from Dan Mullen for the past three or four years. I do not expect Billy Napier to be getting the 10th or 12th best recruiting class and selling us on the fact that his talent eval is so good it's going to make up for it. I just don't see that being something that happens in the future. And if it does, I will be extremely disappointed, but I don't think that's going to be the case. I know. I raised an eyebrow uh, when he said it just because I I know that's a little bit of like, oh, Florida fans don't want to hear that. Yeah, not a great look by him. That was not wise by him to say that. Uh, and again, the proof will be in the pudding. If he's signing top five classes, then he can say that, right? And again, I, I I do think these coaches probably look at some of these recruiting rankings and are like, this guy's a five-star? I I don't see it. I'm not going to spend my time there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, these other guys, yes, right? So I'm not going to take this guy just because he's high on some list. Now, again, you could probably just, run a simulation like you've you've talked about before you run aggregate aggregate like give me all the top people and the the ones that are fake will fade out also have enough great guys it doesn't matter now we're playing with like live bullets here you can't just do that right you have to put in the work and i i don't think anyone when they talk about billy Napier thinks he's just coasting or not going to work or like you said have a process how they're going to evaluate and move forward he's trying to build a recruiting machine and having a million people working on this kind of stuff. So I think when he says that, he's like, I'm not skipping the process and doing just recruiting these guys because they show up on the top of 247. Exactly. Is what, is what he meant by that. It. I agree. And I think that's the key. So not great words, not anything a Florida fan of one series should not have said that as a, as a PR moment. Ooh, your PR advisor would have said, mm, don't say that. That's not even what you mean, right? Right. You just said, I think, exactly what he means. And he mentioned things like army, right? There's <laughs> yeah. an army of he people. He's going to build an army. He talked about investment, which he's directly speaking to boosters, needing investment, more investment as time goes on to be able to make sure that his ideas for NIL and everything else are able to be funded and implemented. And then obviously, you heard him talk about relationships and how it's a long-term thing. And he didn't just say it. Oh, recruiting is relationships. Well, of course it is, right? He talked about how it's built over years and time. And he, he basically parlayed that into why he's not going to be able to just pick up 12 guys or, or nor should he in the next 10 days because those guys become a part of your team and your culture, Alan. And I thought he made a very wise, systematic decision and comment to say, look, I'm not going to take a single guy in the next 12 days, unless they actually fit 
a kind of player that we want to have at this school because I don't want to put 10 cancerous guys onto my team that could affect my future. The best coaches are very protective of their cultures. Nick Saban is, Urban Meyer was, right? Dabo Sweeney is. So I like that he's saying, look, I'll hit the transfer portal. I'll spend some time figuring out who wants to really come here. And he mentioned it, a very Steve Spurrier-like ism. It's a two-way thing. The player's got to want to come, and we've got to want him. I'm not just going to chase a guy down who doesn't really want to be here. You know, I'm not going to strong-arm him into coming. So I think he's got an excellent idea of what it takes to recruit at an elite level. He's done it consistently on every staff he's been on. And that's what he's talking about, what you just said right there. I think it's smart to set expectations for this early signing period, which is coming up, is that if Florida doesn't take people, it's because it's, you know, it's on purpose, right? That they're being selective. Now, again, you could run that as an excuse, right? Hey, we're late to the game and we're not going to take anybody when you couldn't flip anybody and pull some kind of magic, right? I'm fine with that. They're, most of the class is going to sign, but there will be some guys unsigned. There will be some valuable players in January. And again, if, if Florida has a 10-person class, I think in the modern college football, you can fix that a little bit on the back end in the transfer portal, or you can take a bigger class next year. Again, having guys who do nothing for you and are just bodies, you're better off taking preferred walk-ons to fill those slots. And just if you need to beef up your scout team or whatever. Um, so I, th- I think he means that when he says that. Of course, Florida fans would love for him to come roaring out of the gate and close in some crazy top 10 class, and he's flipping all these five stars. But we're talking about weeks here. I mean, early signing day. He started today, essentially. And again, he was working a little last week, but very little. I mean, it's very close. And so to expect anything out of anybody in that time period, I think, is a, a little far-fetched. He, I mean, he's, I think he's a very good coach, very good recruiter, but he's not a miracle worker. So I think it's good to set expectations for that. Well, and the real miracle would be signing a nice class in February where right. you you maybe find some cracks. Like you and I love the show Survivor. Mm-hmm. So perhaps there's some guys that are committed and this early signing day is creeping up on them and they're like, you know, this Napier at Florida sounds interesting. Why don't I wait? It would be prudent for them to wait. And I think that's part of what Napier is saying is like, imagine this, what kind of guy that's been recruited for two or three years by top SEC schools is going to flip in a 10-day period to Florida? That's perhaps not a great sign. You'd rather have a guy be like, let me let me listen to what this guy says. Let me spend a couple of months considering this. It's a big decision for me. And then make a decision. And I think he's partly leaning into that. And I think that is also wise. But again, it's very systematic. There's a, there's a plan behind how he wants to handle this. And he already has thought about what he's going to do. He's not just sitting in his office thinking, oh man, what do I do to make this happen? Right? That's important. That's part of why he's won a championship before. I also thought the 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 question, the second most interesting thing that happened was when they asked him, are you going to be calling plays? Uh, and obviously, Alan, he's been doing that last week on the podcast. We, we caught some some, you know, some stat, <laughs> some stat boy correction out there, if you will, when you had mentioned that, hey, he doesn't call his own plays. Of course, he does. He always has called his own plays. Yeah, sorry about that. That was something I wasn't sure he was still doing. Yeah, and that's yeah, right. And that's why him and Dabo Sweeney originally got in that supposed fist fight, right, of over calling plays. He likes to call plays. He's openly said that calling plays. He was a quarterback, by the way. Um, keeps him as close to playing as possible. I, I, it's very fun for him. He enjoys it. Now, whether or not he's great at it, we're going to find out. He obviously is a back-to-back champion in this conference, so he's doing something right. But he mentioned that calling his own plays, he felt was an advantage for the team. It's a very confident statement to make. Again, if you're in the sort of Florida fan press conference mode, you're like, 
Maybe a slight cringe because we've heard McIlwain say, my dog can play quarterback, no quarterback issues here. We wind up with nothing but quarterback issues. The one quarterback we do have, we run out of town. So there's this little uh, PTSD moment of like, oh, what does that mean? Can I trust that, right? Uh, but obviously, again, a guy who's confident in his plan. Uh, do you like Do you like the idea, Dan Mullen's obviously been doing it, of our coach, our next coach again, calling his own plays? at the quarterback spot and being his own quarterback coach, which again, Mullen didn't do, right? Mullen did hire a quarterback's coach. Right, he was still coaching the quarterbacks. but He, he was, but he had another guy there. Yeah. He, this is not going to be the case uh, with Napier. He will be the sole quarterback's coach with an analyst, right? but that's not an on-field coach. He'll be the only on-field coach here. So this is a place where it's interesting because as I began to look at Louisiana's offense, and we're going to do more on this in a little bit, but... um. I think they're very efficient. They're very good, but they're not like prolific in the sense of that's going to get you noticed as a coordinator kind of thing, right? So I think a lot of Napier's strengths is as like a program builder, process recruiter. He does have a schematic background. So I think that's why I thought he didn't call his plays because you wouldn't build your reputation on that considering their output. Now, again, they have a good offense. It's not a, it's not like a negative for them. Um, but usually when a guy is coaching or calling his own plays, he's a little bit of a savant at it, like a Spurrier, like a Lincoln Riley or, uh, even Dan Mullen to some extent, right? This is how they win. This is how they move. Now I think of course he thinks it's an advantage Otherwise, he wouldn't do it. That that would be disingenuous, right? If it was better for him not to do it, he shouldn't do it. So I don't. I, I he just said the quiet part out loud, I guess, right? Um, you know, sometimes you see coaches. This is a Malzahn thing, right? He moved on and off of it, right? Sometimes he would call it. Sometimes he would hire somebody else to do it. I wonder if Billy Napier is going to have that in his future as he takes on a bigger organizational challenge. If there's just not enough bandwidth to do that. So that's, I think, why it feels like I'm not totally sure how this is going to work for him. I I don't think it's a bad idea, but I don't know that I think it's a slam dunk either. Yeah, that will that will, you know, that will be revealed and it will be seen. We don't totally know yet how obviously it's going to work out. And based upon like what you said, based upon his history of calling plays, OC at Arizona State, OC here, I'm going to break down his offense here in a few minutes in depth. It's he's not in the category of Lane Kiffin, Lincoln Riley, Dan right. Mullen, Steve Spurrier, right? He's not one of those guys. He's never been attached that. No coach he's worked with has ever called him that. That's not the tag that gets put on him. The tag that gets put on him is star recruiter and amazing process guy, which is what he is, which is what a great CEO is. And great CEOs often are not the best individual tacticians of a certain skill set. They're good at everything. So I think he is good at being an offensive play caller, we're going to find out amongst the best minds in college football just how good he is. And he's going to find out. And I think being a process-based guy that he is, I think, Alan, he would remove himself. If he felt like he was at a competitive disadvantage, I think he has enough self-awareness to say, I need someone else to come in here and perhaps revamp my offense, perhaps change my mindset. Who knows, right? I'm getting way in the future, but that's what I like about a systematic process-based thinker is they should not be marrying themselves to any one individual thing. Instead, they're thinking about what's best for the program and what's best upon evaluation. Now, here is something I do like. He mentioned having two O-line coaches. 
Yeah, and he gave some rationale. Yeah. Hey, look, nobody has just one secondary coach. You have two, typically, right? No one has just, you know, there's five players or six guys, whatever the case may be. So with five offensive linemen, eight or nine in the program, I'm going to have two offensive line coaches. More importantly, he believes something that's obviously true. Obviously true. Every coach says it, but he believes it and he's putting resources into it, which is you have to win up front at the line of scrimmage, which is, by the way, completely true. I don't care what kind of offense you run. We've talked about this. You're not going to win unless you are good up front and he's going to put his resources there. I liked that. I think that's a nice tactical play. And one of the ways he does that is by being a quarterback coach. That's what frees up that additional spot for him. That's why he does it. That's very important to him. And that's why he thinks he's getting a synergy there that other coaches may not be able to take advantage of. Yeah, it's it's not traditional. But when you start to think about it, it's true. Like, so if you're coaching corners, how many might you have in the program? Six or seven? I mean, you might have 14 or 15 offensive linemen. That's a lot of guys to keep track of. And if you wanted to do it interior, exterior, or whatever, you could break it down like that. I kind of like it, um, recruiting wise, and you know, kind of productivity development wise too. Everyone's going to get a little bit more of a, you know, kind of specific touch on that. Now, again, the offensive line works as a unit. So, do you have synergy between those two coaches and what they're doing, what they're asking? There's some issues you'd have to work out, right? Because they're not playing on you know, they're not on opposite sides of the field doing different things, right? They have to be cohesive. Um, but I like that kind of thinking. And again, he, he talked about lines of scrimmage, right? That you need to win up front on offensive and defensive lines. I think that's just essentially true. I think acknowledging it is good. So I think if you work towards that, you're probably going to have a high chance of being successful in the SEC. Yeah, hopefully so. And and now let's let's take a second before we get into the contract here, Alan. We okay. mentioned when Dan Mullen got hired, some reservations each of us had. I obviously famously said he's not going to win the SEC. There's no chance. I'll bet on it, <laughs> right? Um, what are some what are some things? Some questions. I think is how we phrased it with the Dan Mullen thing. The questions that Billy Napier will have to answer. It's a soccer term. I love that term if he's going to be able to win an SEC championship, what are some of the things that he perhaps were not so sure of? And for Dan Mullen, the major, major one was recruiting. And the second one for me was his offensive style. Would he have evolved into Dan Mullen 2.0? And then the third one we were, we were, you know, we really were not sure about Allen was his CEO level. Right. We didn't bring that up with Dan Mullen. That became a major thing. So there will be unknowns with Billy Napier too. But from what we see right now, what are some things that you think he'll have to prove that are unknown or that perhaps maybe are slightly concerning to you as we head into his tenure? Well, I think we've hit on a little bit. Are we going to be dynamic enough on offense, right, to play with the big boys, right? So the way that Alabama is scoring right now, they're putting a premium on points, right? And they're still playing tremendous defense, right? I mean, Alabama is the gold standard, so you always end up comparing yourself to that. Now, Florida has been interesting, you know, felt like we're going to be able to get points on the board, right? Could we do all the other things, right? And again, he still has to hire the rest of his staff. We don't know what the defense is totally going to look like, all those things. But so I would think schematically, could we be in that top tier? Is he a limiting factor as the OC? And I don't know that. I could watch him and be, actually, I'm super pleased. And even though it's not 
flashy. I really love it. It's super effective and efficient uh, because he's going to have to win, I think, with recruiting and infrastructure. So that's what he's going to make his bones about, you know, and can he actually translate that? So the second question is, I know he's going to focus on recruiting. Can he do it at this level? That's less of a question mark, but I think that's the other thing, right? So if you're going to win through recruiting and infrastructure, you actually have to then do it. I didn't really have those question marks about Dan as much. I I felt like we would be successful, again, even if it wasn't our preferred style. Now, he surprised us with all the different ways he went and how how he maximized that, and we were really impressed by that. So maybe Napier has that level in, in him too. When he gets better athletes, he's able to do more things, right? A better quarterback will unleash more parts of, the, of his offense. So that remains to be seen. I think for me, the the overall question is, does Billy Napier's game, so to speak, translate to the bigs? We gave the baseball analogy of a AAA player, everything you need, everything that, that a scout could say, he has the right game, he has the ability to hit the curveball, he has the ability to do all these things. But then Five-tool you, player. Then, yeah, right, five-tool player, right, classic scouting comment. Then you get to the bigs, and you either make it or you don't. And you don't know. You can't know. No one can know 100% if these guys that have a really high ceiling can make it or not because they haven't faced that level of competition, not as a head coach. For all the time that Billy Napier has spent on staffs, there's a lot of other guys who have done the same thing, Alan, right? And the Saban coaching tree is excellent, obviously. But there's a whole bunch of other Saban assistants that have gone out there and just been nothing like Saban. So it's one thing to have done it at the level he's done it at, which is remarkable. Louisiana, again, no history of doing any of this stuff. He's broken tons of records. He's just totally moved them into the stratosphere of their conference. But building that kind of program is very different than building a Florida kind of program. It's just very different. So A, can he recruit by himself as the head coach the elite athletes? Now, it looks like he can, but that's still a question he has to answer, right? He's never, as a head coach, had to recruit top 100 guys like he's going to have to now. Can he go into living rooms and can he pull guys that are looking at Nick Saban and Kirby Smart, even a Brian Kelly, Jimbo Fisher? Can he win some of those battles, right? That will be a challenge for him because he is the lesser accomplished coach in that circuit. So he's still going to have to prove that. But again, I think for every question you want to ask of him, it comes back to the same thing. Is his recipe something that works at this level? And if it's not, which can be okay, is he able to be a smart enough tactician and strategist to address it and change with it as time goes on? Because it's okay if your recipe that got you where you are doesn't quite work at this level, as long as you're willing to examine what you need to do to make it work. But if you don't, and you just keep trying your process because, hey, I'm a champion, and this has worked before, before you know it, it's you're going to be out. It's not going to work for you, right? And so that, I think, is what we're going to look at his tenure and say, yes, his system worked. Here's where he tweaked it. Here's where he was smart to make it work. And that's why he's a championship winning coach. Or we're going to say he's not. You know, he's stuck with this. It wasn't working. It never worked. It wasn't good. Or he couldn't pull these players in. His process wasn't good enough at this level. And we'll know that's what dooms him. So I think on paper, he's got everything he'd want. You can raise a question mark about his offense, which we're going to talk about. I think that's largely overblown personally. Um, but really, it's going to be does his game translate? Because he's got the playbook. He has an entire playbook with everything he wants for everything he wants to do. It's all laid out. It's all there. Now does it work? So I do think right now 
you have to be elite schematically on one side of the ball to beat the very, very, very best teams. So that could be us defensively, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that could be us offensively too. Those are the places where that's the, the idea of, of hiring like a Brent Venables or a guy who is a Lincoln Riley is that you already lock in theoretically a schematic advantage on one side of the ball, or the other, and hoping that you could kind of round out the rest of it. Now, we're coming so basically, you know, we kind of fired that that guy and hired his opposite in some sense, in terms of not totally, but a guy who focused on recruiting and infrastructure. And I'm for that. So don't hear me say I'm pining for the Mike Leach of the world kind of a thing. Um I really like what he's gonna bring to the table. If I have a question mark, that's where it's at. Sure. And like we said, Dabo Sweeney, very much a Billy Napier kind of guy, mm-hmm. has had the elite guy in Brett Venables. There you go, right? He's had that guy. So that proves proves your concept and proves there's path for Napier where you don't have to be at Dabo's. No one's going to hire Dabo as right. their specialist coach for either offense or defense. Not that he does not understand those things, but he's not in those categories of those guys who are gifted teachers or they're gifted with their innovation or whatever the case may be. And it seems like Billy Napier is in that regard too. He's probably an above average offensive mind, but he's not a whiz kid. He's not a Mike Leach. He's not all these other guys. Um, but again, defensively, he's free to hire whoever and do whatever. And and Louisiana's defense, very, very good. Yep. They got better every single year he was there, finishing first this year. So he was trending in that direction. That's really what won them the championship uh, this past Saturday. So, all right, let's talk very briefly about his contract before we get into the offense itself. Contract, Allen, seven years, $7.1 million per year with $100,000 increase per year automatically. Performance bonuses up to $1.5 million, depending on what he wins each season. He gets some moving expenses. He gets annual jet use, tickets, etc. Buyout terms, 85% of the remaining comp through that seven-year period would be his buyout if Florida fired him. So if Florida goes for the three-year test, it's $21 million bucks. Subtract that from 50. You're roughly left with, you know, 30-ish million dollars. 85% of that would be paid to him. That's a lot of money. So if he fails the three-year test, Florida's on the hook for a lot of money. Scott Strickland wisely said, essentially about the contract, unfortunately, this is what the market is demanding. Basically, like, I don't like the situation either contractually, but this is what has to be done to hire a coach. Therefore, I have to do it. And then... We're paying $3 million to Louisiana for the rights to get Billy Napier. And there's a sliding buyout on his end where it goes down over time. The big thing people talk about here with this, 7.5 mil for assistance, which is great, but then $5 million for other support staff, something That's Florida has been woefully inadequate. And we've talked about this for a long time. Finally, there's a chance to have, as he calls it, an army of assistants working for the staff, helping him do what he wants to do with his goal. So how do you feel overall about this contract, about how Florida negotiated, about where it is, anything that sticks out to you, love it, hate it, doesn't matter? Well, I, like I said, I think Florida's free to spend that money on support staff, and I think it's going to be well spent. But you have to know how to use it. And that's what Scott Strickland said, I think, is that it wasn't just like, hey, I want some money for some support staff. Is that he had a very detailed plan why every person was necessary. And I think when you see that, you go, and you have the resources to do it, you go, okay, I'm going to fund that because you've presented – a compelling vision for it. So not just like, Hey, here's some money, go figure out how to spend it. Well, I would feel less like 
who cares, right? Because you have a million people doing nothing on your staff. And what does that really get you? The buyout sucks, honestly. I just dislike this in general for college football. And we took another swing at it here. And I don't like it. I was hoping we were going to move out of this. But the way these contracts are escalating, right? Unless you're able to negotiate the like, hey, we're going to give you a ton in performance bonus and lower your buyout. You'd have to negotiate in a different kind of way. Because there's so many openings, this wasn't the chance to like set the market in your favor. Um, but I would have liked to do, you know what? I'd rather give them more money annually and lower buyout. I don't know if that was available to Strickland or Palatable or something that Napier is comfortable with. I would, we're not privy to negotiations, but that's where I would want to change things. Just because as we said, you're not hiring you know, peak Nick Saban where you're like, who cares about the buyout? We're never firing him anyway. There's a decent chance we're going to want to fire Billy Napier in three to four years because of the nature of college football right now. And not that Florida has to like stand its ground and <laughs> do stuff that's just going to leave us non-competitive, but I still don't like it. I think that is a competitive advantage to not have a big buyout hanging over you in some sense. So I don't know that that's the place where I would love. I was wanting to see the contract and be like, Oh, there's the buyout is very low. That's great. I would have loved that too. And that, that's the part to me where I give an F to it. And we, we have no inside info. Hopefully one day we'll get Scott on the show. We'll get him on the show for sure, but we'll be able to maybe have a more frank discussion on, was it possible? Is it even possible to get anything better than this on the buyout side? Because 85% of somebody's remaining term for seven years in a sport where I've gone on and banged the drum consistently that the average coach is going to tell you within three years whether you fail or not is a lot of money to hook yourself into. A lot, right? So if I did a three-year contract with option to extend, I'd feel a lot better. I'm going to give you three years. Great. There's no buyout I'm on the hook for. But to basically get to the end of year three and say, okay, failed three-year test in my athletic director mind... I have four years left on this contract that I'm going to eat for $28 million plus dollars. That seems wrong. It does not matching the duration of what you know. And, you know, again, Scott's saying that's unfortunately the way the market is. We don't know what that negotiation looks like, but I'm with you, Alan. That's a big, big number. And again, given the average survival rate of a coach at these programs is roughly three to four years, you can almost bank on the fact that the odds are in favor of Billy Napier, who we, of course, both hope succeed, not lasting seven years. And if he doesn't, you're on the hook for another big buyout. So that part's unfortunate, but the rest of the contract, I think, is sound and solid with most notable, sure. of course, the assistant level. And again, if you're wondering uh, right now, you know, Napier is making less than Dan Mullen did. So you're paying less in salary to your coach than what Dan Mullen had by, by about 500000 But still, you know, he's now the fifth, Billy Napier, that is, is the fifth highest paid coach in the SEC probably going to be the sixth if Lane giving it a new contract from Old Miss, which is expected. And I think if you're Napier, that you have to be fine with that. You're you're not you haven't proven yourself. Oh, it's exactly where you should be. So yeah, again, I'm not a professional contract negotiator, but that's where I would have wanted to make trades. Like, hey, we'll give you everything you asked for and we're gonna like now that I don't have confidence in you, I'm hiring you. Of course. Right. Yeah. So anyway, that hopefully we'll never need it. But that's uh, that's not really how college football works these days. So we'll see. All right. James, a new sponsor to read. 
Love it. And well, you're going to do it. That's so it. Brett Boncori, get excited. Here comes yeah. Alan Williams on a, on a live read. Trying to go to a game this holiday season? Tick pick. That's T-I-C-K-P-I-C-K is the original no-fee ticket site and the only one you'll ever need as your go-to for all tickets for NCAA football, NFL, concerts, NBA, and more. James, sounds good. TickPick guarantees the best prices on all of their college football tickets. If you can find better prices for the same seats on another site, TickPick will give you 110% of the difference in the purchase price. Which is amazing. Wow. So that's a serious guarantee for TickPick. So yeah, you're looking to check out a bowl game maybe coming up here? Go to TickPick, right? Visit TickPick today at TickPick.com slash Gators. That's TickPick.com slash Gators. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. All right, let's talk about Napier's offense. I want to hear this. Here. I want to talk um, about this. Let's talk about it. I've done the film review. I've done a deep dive. I've looked at the stats during his tenure at Louisiana. And I want to start by saying right out of the gate, we've gotten asked this question a lot. I like it. I like his offense. And I want to talk about some things that have happened and some things that I think will happen. I think he's been tactical with what he's had to do based upon his roster. You heard him lean into that. I saved this part of the press conference for now when he mentioned, I want to run the football and stop the run. And Florida fans are like, oh, Mm -hmm. no, we're Jim Harbaugh, right? Well, first of all, every coach is going to say that because that is true. You have to stop teams from running the football. You have to. And you yourself have to be able to run the football. My big qualm with Mike Leach, Allen, is that he doesn't run the football enough. I love the air raids. It's my favorite passing style. 
but running allows you to pass more easily if you do it at the correct time. So my offensive strategy in my mind has always been tactical. Take exactly what the defense gives you. If they want you to run, run. If they want you to pass, pass. But you can't just be a bull who's going to say, I don't care what they're doing. I'm going to line up and run the football at them. And we'll talk about whether Napier does that or not. But in general, I like the offense. The scheme makes sense. How they set things up makes sense. There's going to be some things that we've seen before from the McIlwain era, which is really the Alabama-style offense. And then really, in my opinion, overall, spoiler alert, this is a very multiple-based offense. They run all sorts of stuff. Air raid. They run a, a true spread zone read style. They run the pistol. They run orbit motion, jet motion. They do all sorts of things which makes them, as Billy Napier said, a very, very hard three-day prep for opponents. And before I get into all that stuff, Alan, you've got your finger up. You want to say something? Well, yeah. Away. The more I read about it, the more I like it, right? Because, again, they're not prolific in the sense that they're they're setting records. They're the number one offense in college football. They're kind of making headlines. But when I look at things like some of their more intricate statistics about how often they're throwing the ball downfield, their efficiency, which I think is a stat that's really undervalued. I like it more and more. Um, I want to ask you this question because one of the, the big stats that has got put out there a lot, 57% run, 43% pass. All right, You and I have both talked about how we prefer a passing-oriented offense in today's college football. This does not seem to be that, at least at Louisiana. So I don't know if it's, like as you said, it's a heavy emphasis on run or a heavy willingness to run. Does that give you, uh, you've just kind of answered this a little bit, but let me like, put it on you a little bit. Does that give you pause when you see it spelled out that distinctly? Well, yeah, I'm spelling it out like that, and you're you're reading it off right there in front of me. Uh, it does give me pause. I am obviously a fan of the pass, as we know. What will give me more pause is if that number holds true at Florida. I suspect it will not. So he also leaned, he's leaned into this a lot. If you read his comments, he talks about playing up-tempo versus down-tempo, possessions per game, managing your roster. And at Louisiana, I think he wanted to be a ball control offense. He wanted to limit possessions that his team, opposing teams were getting. And he wanted to threaten you offensively, east, west, north, south, which they do but not at the expense of three and outs, not at the expense of exhausting his players because you just don't have the kind of depth that you need. Now, look, Nick Saban for a long time was banging the same exact drum. I don't want to wear out my players. I don't want to get in this situation. Eventually, he had to, but Nick Saban has a luxury at Alabama of having an incredible, really four-deep roster, right? Alabama is so deep that they will, they will frequently do something that Billy Napier wants to do that most teams don't do, which is they will simultaneously run two scrimmages at you know at both fields with coaches observing each one so basically you're doubling your reps per week for your players whereas many teams will have a scrimmage going on with half the sideline being players watching right but you have to get to that point so i think if you if, if billy napier here right now i imagine what he would say is i probably want to be a balanced which i don't like that word either but i probably want to be balanced i want an equal emphasis on run and pass but I'm going to make sure that, as he said yesterday in the press conference, that I'm complete with how I view my team. Football's a team game, offense, defense, special teams. I don't want to do something just for the sake of doing it that then hurts my defense or hurts my plan to beat this opponent. And I think that's what's happening. So 
If it is true that Florida becomes a 57% run, 43% pass team, I don't think we'll ever win a national title. Those days are gone. And it's proven by the fact that Nick Saban himself, who used to be a 60% run, 40% pass guy, has totally abandoned that. That's gone. And a guy even like Kirby Smart, who's probably the most conservative, best coach available, is still closer to 50-50 run pass, right? This would be way too high. So I don't think it's going to look like that. I also don't think it looks like Georgia's offense. And that's what that's what the fear is. I think for a lot of Florida right. fans, Man ball you hear pro style, you hear, oh no. And pro style is great, by the way. I love the NFL. It's amazing. Pro style nowadays is not mean what it used to mean. But you think Georgia. If you're thinking his offense is like Georgia's, it's nothing like Georgia's offense. It's way more creative than that. It's much better than that, in my opinion. And here's a proof of that, Allen. In the App State game, there are at least eight or nine plays where receivers are wide open. Now, they hit them almost zero times. There's a lot that goes into that, right? App State's selling out to stop the run in every single play. They know that although Louisiana's quarterback just broke their passing yards record, he's really a runner and not a thrower. But the plays themselves are excellent, very well designed. They're scheming people to be wide open, and they look they look excellent. They're repeatable. They're solid. They're not gimmicky. And a lot of that's based upon how the offense is structured and also shows that they understand how to get guys open, something that Dan Mullen does. And that's a championship game, not a game against an opponent that doesn't know you. So they're playing an opponent that knows them super well, and yet they're scheming a lot of open receivers. Now, again, they don't always hit them, but you expect at this level, when you get better offensive linemen, better receivers, better quarterbacks, that becomes an even higher conversion rate. So on film, a lot of open players. That's step one. Step two, they're a heavy play action team, which... In my opinion, you should be. Play action is the offense's best weapon. There's a reason why NFL teams will always use play action. One of the ways that Louisiana creatively does this, Alan, is they use a lot of pistol sets where the running back is behind the quarterback. And that allows the quarterback to basically fake a handoff like you would in a regular under center kind of single back formation. So it gives you a chance to actually run a traditional play action Or before the snap, you can motion your single back next to your quarterback and run a traditional zone read. It gives the defense that consistent exit wrinkle. It's another way for you to get play actions for RPOs, to be multiple, to attack vertically. I love it. I think it's awesome that they run that kind of stuff. I like it a lot. They also run a lot of RPOs. So one-fifth of their offense are true RPOs, something that we said Dan Mullen, head-scratchingly so, just didn't run a lot of RPOs in his time. He's not really an RPO guy. I think that makes a lot of sense. And... As you mentioned, 31% of their passes travel more than 15 yards, which is not a ton, but I think that number will be even higher in the future because they did that this year where Florida threw just 30%. And again, I think he's going to lean into that more depending on his talent, depending on what goes on with the scheme. So most importantly, I come to this. What I care about with offense is what I said earlier. What does their tactical scenario look like now what i can look at is how often do they throw versus a loaded run box which means they should throw a lot and how often do they run versus a loaded run box etc etc if you look at dan mullen's tenure at florida dan mullen about 15 percent of the time would run into a loaded run box if it wasn't third and one or fourth and one he would just do it we talked about it right billy napier does it less than two percent of the time which is remarkable, which tells you it's very tactical. Much like Bama. Hey, you want to line up like that? 
And you'll hear Nick Saban say this. You want to look like that? Then I'm going to run the ball every single time, which is what they did against Old Miss. I love that. If you look at the, the strategy and the scheme and the soundness of it, it's excellent. And if they had, if they had basically the reverse, if teams went to a heavy pass scenario, like we saw with Kyle Trask, and they ran the ball a lot. So they were taking what the defense gives them. They're not just running plays because he wants to run the football. Uh, And oftentimes their run number gets higher, Allen, because they're winning at the end of games. That's true. They're seeing games out at the end of games. This is probably 3 to 4% higher than it would be. But when you're winning your games, you see it out, you finish it out, you run four or five, six plays in a row. That bumps your numbers up pretty significantly. So all in all, here are some of the biggest changes you're going to see. One, you will see the pistol. Something that Florida has not run a lot of traditionally. Which I like as well. Really at all. I love it. It's very NFL. NFL teams like to use it. Um, especially guys like Kyle Shanahan. They're big fans of the pistol. If you haven't seen it a lot, you probably saw Colin Kaepernick run it at Nevada. And that's where it became famous. Kind of invented it. Mm-hmm. You see teams put it in occasionally. I'm surprised it actually hasn't got more run as like a kind of utility offense. But... So fun that that's incorporated into what? Yeah, and a, and a pistol is not a play. It's just a formation, sure, right? Sure. It's nothing special. It's not even a gimmick. It's just a way for you to run play action without going under center. Theoretically, you give your quarterback, it's easier to read the field from shotgun. Mm-hmm. That's why you don't want to have, if you're under center and I turn around, I lose, I lose sight of the field for a good you know two seconds. And then when I turn my head around, I have to locate where my receivers are. This way, as a quarterback, you only, you're cutting that time in half. You take the snap, you get your pre-snap read, you fake your hand off to your running back, your eyes are now back downfield. So it's a way for you to do that. That's why teams like it. I like that. But what you're going to see something uh, something done here at Florida you haven't seen in a while is that they use a lot of two wide receiver sets. Now, most teams, especially teams that are spread teams, exclusively like to use 11 personnel, one running back, one tight end. Most NFL teams, though, Alan, like to use 11 personnel and a lot of 12 personnel. One running back, two tight ends. Now, Florida will do this, right? But they do it about three times less often than Billy Napier does it. So he really likes to move in and out of 11 personnel and 12 personnel. I love 12 personnel. I always have. I think 12 personnel, especially if you're a superior team and the run game is so dynamic. It's a great way for you to run the ball, power football. Also a good way to open up your tight ends in the middle of right, the field. Unless you do both. If you want to be balanced, it, it allows for that. And yeah, if you want to be tactical with how the defense lines up and you can change your play call at the line of scrimmage to alternate between run and pass, I think that sets up very nicely for that. You're not sometimes you get in those three, four wide receiver sets, you're you're less versatile in what you want to do. Correct. And so that's the key is you can look at numbers and you can say, okay, well, James, they've been third or fourth every single year on offense. They're sort of always in here. That is true, but you want to look at how they're doing it. And I think that how they're doing it against not like Georgia, it is not that kind of offense. It's much more creative. I think it's very sound. There's a lot of things on film that I like. It's very tactical in how they attack their opponents, and they hardly ever turn the ball over. That's probably the staple of Billy Napier's offenses is is incredible ball security. No matter where he's been, they just don't throw picks. They don't turn the ball over, which means he's a very good quarterbacks coach when it comes to understanding when you make the throw, where you make the throw, and how you make the throw. And that's important. That's really important. Again, you can't turn the ball over three or four times a game and win. But also, they're not running screen passes every play. They're throwing vertical routes downfield. Uh, So I like it on film. In fact, I like it, Alan, much more than I thought it would. Having seen the numbers all year long, I kind of thought I'm going to put the film on and be like, "Mm, I don't know. I actually wound up thinking this is a good offense, and I want to I want to end it with this. 
if you liked what Alabama did with Mac Jones and that whole cast of guys last year, it's very much what Billy Napier wants to do. The biggest differences are Alabama does run traditional power. They still run a lot of under center. Napier's never going under center. But he may change that if he has players that allow him to do it. That's where we don't really know what he might do, Alan. At Louisiana, you're less likely to go under center because it's just, it's just it's more demanding on your football team physicality-wise to hold up. It's a lot more risky. So there's some unknowns. But if you liked that vertical passing attack of Alabama, where they oftentimes would only send two receivers out, I chronicled on the YouTube channel, you are going to see a lot of that, where you go heavy play action, you're sending two receivers out, but you're also going to see empty sets where they send five guys out. So they're super multiple. They attack you every which way, which is sound, smart offense. I came away liking it, despite the fact that I do have reservations about how often they run it, which I do. I like how the plays are designed. I like what they're trying to do, and I like when they're trying to do it. I think a lot of it's very football sound, which is very encouraging. It doesn't look like, again, things that we saw with McIlwain, right? I mean, McIlwain was the king of just numbers, total mismanagement. It was awful at taking what the defense was giving him. It was almost comical how bad it was. I see none of those things in the Billy Napier film session or statistics, which is really encouraging to me. Yeah, it kind of fits with his profile as someone who's like high control and also maybe a little bit of an amalgamator of things, right? That he would utilize all these things. He's not a system-based guy like, I do the air raid and here's how I win with it, right? That he'd be willing to like pick and choose and bring things on and like, yeah, we're going to run a bunch of stuff and we're going to be good at all of it because we're going to be so process-oriented. So even if we're not innovating in college football, we're going to be the best at kind of picking and choosing some of these things. I think that strategy can really work, especially if you have really good personnel to run it. Um, The problem with all of those things normally is that can your guys learn them all enough to be effective at them? Are they just kind of like pretty bad at all of them? He seems like a guy who's not willing to let that happen. Um, And so it's interesting. I, you know, like I said, the more I've read about it, the more I've liked it. I kind of was, was with you a little bit as I looked at the numbers, like, you know, good. But if you want to bank yourself on being an offensive guy, it's not really what you were, you would think. I think you can be successful with it, certainly. And then, you know, something I've been thinking about in the last couple of weeks is, um, I forget where I read or heard this, but why do coaches still want to run the ball and stop the run? And again, this isn't something that, I don't think a lot about, but there's something about getting the ball run down your throat. I think this is after the Michigan Ohio state game where it kind of steals your soul a little bit. Like you can give up kind of six yard passes. It's like, you know, okay, we'll stop it next time. But just getting destroyed physically, I think is really difficult to recover from. And so that's why teams don't want to get the ball run down their throat because you can't compete. Ultimately you kind of lose your will. And that's why, Coaches still say things like, hey, we're going to stop the run and run the ball. We're going to be elite physically, or what did he, Billy Napier say, elite competitively, or we're going to have elite toughness or those types of things. Those are still really valuable. We tend to probably highlight the more strategic elements of football, but there's still the, I got to get out there and compete. And if I'm just a, you know, I know what to do, but I'm not willing to put forth like effort to do it, then we're not going to be a very good football team. So that's part of that culture. I think that football coaches still have to keep their fingers on, right? If schematically you have an advantage, but the guys aren't able to do it, it doesn't matter. So I don't want to totally 
write that off either. I think it's probably an underrated element as you're observing the game. So I, I think he understands that as well as, I mean, it's what he at least hinted at it in his press conference. And I think here, here's something to take some, some food for thought. If Bill Belichick were coaching at a school like Louisiana, and I consider Bill Belichick to be the really probably the best overall tactician of the game, right? Understanding strategy, game theory, roster management, et cetera. And I think you can see that this year with New England, right? Mac Jones is is doing better than I thought he would, but they're managing him beautifully. They're really limiting his his risky totally. throw percentage. They're making it's safe throws. It's comfortable stuff. But the point of that is, even with Tom Brady, there were games where they would throw the ball like 15 times with Tom Brady because he knew that this team was going to do this. Therefore, he had to do that. Billy Napier is not Bill Belichick, but I do think there's a world, Allen, based upon what I've seen on film, based upon the numbers, based upon his history, that he's far more tactical than Florida Gator fans are giving him credit for. They're sort of fearing this Jim Harbaugh, like, I'm going to run the football 55 times a game, I'm going to throw it only when I have to. That is not what Billy Napier is. I think he's a multiple. He's got... He's got influence from all the various systems that he's been around. He's got a little bit of Lane Kiffin. He's got a little bit of air raid. He's got a little bit of pro style running. He's got a lot of different factors that make sense to me. And we will see what he does at Florida. We will see. Is there a fear that it's going to be too vanilla? I had that fear after seeing it on film. Not so much anymore. I think the plays that I saw were really, really solid. Is there a fear he runs too much? Potentially. That's what we have to see, right? But again, with Belichick, I think there's a management to your roster. And I think it's funny that people have wanted to bring up his his win rate in, in one-score games. He's 16-3 and three in one-score games. And it's very easy to say, well, that's fluky or that's lucky. But this is a guy who talks about his process being a complete team process to win football games, which tells you he's tactically thinking of how to win. And the best coaches of all time have what you would consider to be fluky one-score rates. Nick Saban does. Bill Belichick does. Name all the best coaches. They're way above what you would expect to have if you just assume those things are random, which I do not think they're random. And it has to do with the human element, has with momentum, has with understanding your own team, right? So I think that Napier has a lot of things that are nuanced that don't quite show up. And look, on the flip side, Alan, there's been so many offensive geniuses that never turn out as head coaches. Rich, sure. Rich Rodriguez, remember him? He was the world's greatest spread offensive coordinator. Where is he right now, right? Dana Holgerson, he's an average to fine middling coach. Great offensive guy. Phenomenal offensive guy, right? So I think that if you're afraid of Billy Napier's offense, a, you shouldn't be. It looks nice on film. B, I don't know if it's going to be the number one offense in the SEC. I don't know that yet. If we get the best players like Bama does, I think it would be. How about that? I don't think it's going to hold you back. And then and then lastly, what matters most for any of these guys' offensive styles is having the right players. Do you think Florida's offense sucked this year, Allen? It sure did. Was it amazing with Kyle Trask? It sure was because we had a bunch of good players. Right? So at the end of the day, no offensive coordinator can make up for players that aren't good. That's what we want to keep saying. So if you're putting all of your eggs in the offensive genius basket, that's the wrong basket to put your eggs in. You'd rather have a plus offensive guy who's a phenomenal CEO and great recruiter who gets how to win. And then, of course, you can pair him with like an elite defensive guy. That's like the home run, right? But the point is like, 
don't put all your eggs in that basket. That's that's not the basket you want to be in. And Lincoln Riley, I think, would most people would say is probably the one of the best offensive minds along with Lane Kiffin. And as great as he's been, Allen, he hasn't won anything yet, right? He has not won. Look, Luke Fickle, defensive guy in the playoffs. Historic stuff in the program. Nick Saban, defensive guy in the playoffs. Kirby Smart, defensive guy. Jim Harbaugh, run the ball guy. He's an anomaly. But the point is like, I love offense. You love offense. We all love offense. I love throwing the football. I want to win, but I love tactical, sound football the most. So if a team wants to make me run the ball every time, I will run it every single time. And if they want me to pass it, I will pass it every single time. That's what I care about the most. That matters most to me. We're going to see what he does. Right. But what I'm trying to tell you is, based upon the stats, that part looks really good. He doesn't look like a bullheaded offensive coordinator who's just doing his own style. He looks like he's playing to the context of the game. Now, we're going to find out what happens in the big leagues, but that to me is a very, very good thing that I uncovered when studying what's there. So we will see what happens, you know, actually beginning next year on the football field. Right. And I think this is be a cultural fit, right? So I think Florida values winning, but Florida also values offense and I think prolific offense and wants to see the ball thrown, you know? So I think, I don't know if he understands that. And I don't know if he really cares about it ultimately because he's so process and tactical oriented. But I do think we, again, no one checks every box, but I think that's where I think Gator Nation rightly feels that because of our history, right? When we have much jump in here winning or we're playing caveman ball, nobody cares. Nobody likes it, right? So I don't, I'm not saying Napier's anywhere near that, but that's the, I think, where people have like a little bit of, a reaction to it, as you said, but he'll get a chance to put it on the field and we'll get to see it. Game one, it gets a most likely a very good Utah team. Oh, very, yeah, yeah. So, and no doubt, you're right. That that's kind of take on point for me, especially right. Football for me is entertainment. I say it all the time. On one hand, I bring my analysis hat and I say, here's what I want to have happen to win football games and win titles. On the other hand, I say I want to be entertained. I'm not entertained running the football every single play. It's not fun for me. It's just not that exciting. I like throwing the football. So I share the fears. If it goes in that direction, the first place you will hear it is here. Exactly. You're not going to hear us confirmation biasing in because we like the hire saying, yeah, we're going to excuse that. No, we are not. If stuff starts to go against the numbers and stuff is not making sense and we're becoming who we don't want to become, you will hear it here. But I have I have cautious optimism based upon what I'm seeing, what I'm looking at, that this offense is going to be very much like what Alabama is somewhere in between, you know, Steve Sarkeesian, Lane Kiffin. And this Bill O'Brien edition is almost entirely matchup based, Alan, which a lot of people don't like. It's very NFL mentality based, but it's going to be some maglamation of that. And if it is that and we have the right players, I don't think anyone is going to be sad about Florida's offense. It's going to be very productive. And last but not least, Alan, you know what Louisiana's offense does? It scores points. He averaged more than 30 points every single year. That's fantastic at a school that doesn't average points like that at all. So clearly the productivity has been there. Again, we will see what happens. We will follow it a lot to keep up with. All right. As I've mentioned each week now for the past couple of weeks, and I will you know, continue to do so until the end of the year, you should visit the Cade Museum if you find yourself in Gainesville over the holidays or the new year. It's a wonderful, wonderful place to go. You can check out the website on www.cademuseum.org and you can use our code GATORNATION either on the website for a buy one, get one free or at the desk when you walk in for a buy one, get one free 
Again, wonderful place to check out. Beautiful building right there in Depot Park. Uh, well worth a visit. So check that out and let them know the code Gator Nation. All right, it's time now, Alan, for us to turn to the conference championship games. This segment brought to you by BetUS. Of course, sports betting season totally in full swing. College football playoffs, bowl season, NFL, uh, basketball, everything here in the middle of this Christmas season is available, Alan. And, and to begin, if you haven't yet already, sign up on BetUS.com. Use our promo code GNation125 or GNation200. That's GNation125 or GNation200 to get a nice big signing bonus for joining. Either 125 or 150%. Your choice. If you use one of those codes, you're also supporting our show as Alan and I get a hundo bomb for each one of you that signs up, which is also great. So visit BetUS.com today and sign up. All right, Alan, why don't you walk us through the games that we picked last week since you were the winner of last week. And now as the season has ended, officially you were the winner of the 2021 regular season football picking contest congratulations my friend thank you i went seven and four you went five and six that's 87 82 for me on the year you 83 86 you almost got back to 500 you needed a good week i started off hot and in the first half of these games and these were in chronological order i was catching you and i thought i had you and then i i just limped to the finish line well thank you i'll wear my crown with humility and joy okay uh UTSA finishes a really great season for them. Hard to believe they've only been around for like 10 years as a program or something like that. Great, great job by them. They win 49-41 over a very game Western Kentucky. Yeah, excellent stuff. I mean, someone to follow out there, obviously, coaching-wise. I think he'll, him and Jamie Chadwell, they'll be, they'll be getting looks as the years go on. Utah just runs over Oregon again, 38-10. to 10. If Crystal Ball was still at Oregon, I'd be saying how he's just not a good enough coach to win anything there, uh, which I think is true. But look, hats off. Again, good coaches have good coaching trees. So if you look at Urban Meyer, of course, the number one feather in his cap is Utah. Uh, yeah, for sure. He built it. It's maintained itself. It's his assistant that's still there. They're they're solid every single year, and, and they have to be feeling great about themselves. They have a for, Pac-12 championship. Yes, and just beating Oregon like a drum twice. In the span of three games, that's fantastic. They had a real slow start to the season. Otherwise, I mean, if this is a bigger playoff, no one would want to play them right now. Very true. They are playing good football. Oklahoma State, man, cannot get it done. Baylor, looking strong. They win 21-16. I mean, Dave Aranda, phenomenal, phenomenal season. This was one of the more gut-wrenching finishes to a football oh my game gosh. I know, you crazy, could ever watch. Crazy that playoff Picks were coming down to this one play inches, mere inches. If you haven't seen it, you got to go back and look at it. I mean, which made this a playoff game in and of itself, which yeah. is amazing. But yeah, if you somehow didn't see this, please right now stop listening to the podcast and Google the Oklahoma State Baylor finish as the running back is inches. I mean, an inch, an inch and a half. I mean, impossible play that he gets stopped on fourth down. But a, a true goal line stand, the stuff of movie legend, and Baylor hangs on to win, knocking Mike Gundy and Oklahoma State out of the playoffs, which I can't even imagine the pain that they must be feeling from that one. For sure. That's going to sting for a generation, probably, unless they come back and make it again the next year. But, man, whew. they played about as badly as they could in the first half, and they still were right there inches away from winning it. Great game. Kent State loses. To Northern Illinois. 
2341. I observed none of this game. Yeah, so at this point in time, I'm three and one, and I'm feeling good. I've got a lead on you. Uh, it was not to be. Utah State, we correctly pegged this one, really crushes San Diego State 46 13. Still feeling good. And then this is this is my fault. This is where my down my downslide happens. Yeah, we here. both went with App State here, wondering about the Billy Napier effect. We we undervalued him here. And Louisiana wins 24-16. Remarkable achievement by Louisiana. I mean, with that, with that many just high-level distractions in your program, it's truly incredible that they were able to beat this opponent twice. They crushed him earlier in the year. Beat him again with all the stuff going on, everything happening, all the emotions. That's a remarkable achievement. And congratulations, obviously, to Louisiana, the players, and Billy Napier for getting that done. All right, maybe the headline game here. Georgia gets demolished by Alabama 41-24. Maybe they get exposed a little bit in the process. I just had a feeling Alabama was going to have it for them, even though they looked terrible against Auburn the week before. Georgia had no answers for them ultimately on defense, which was shocking. No, they didn't. And we said in our film prep, Alan, on the YouTube channel, that Georgia's weakness was their secondary. And you could see it on film. Teams were getting receivers open, but nobody was able to block long enough to make them pay. One of the problems with playing zone is if you can block for longer than a couple of seconds, somebody's going to be open. Bama was the first team that was able to handle Georgia's pressure. And then Georgia blew a bunch of zones in the back end. Why? Because they're not used to covering for that long. They came unglued. They weren't sticking to their their responsibilities. They looked nothing like the team they were. This makes me feel good in a way because although we kept saying statistically Georgia's one of the best defenses ever, we kept using that word, it didn't feel right because this is a tremendous down year for, for offenses in college football. It just didn't feel like that Georgia team really had proven it against good offensive teams. And here you have Bama who should have lost to Auburn. Right. They were shut out for three quarters. Blanked. Just absolutely annihilate the so-called best defense. And and you're left, you're left as a Georgia fan with yet the head scratching decision to continue to play Stetson Bennett. And then the Monday presser today, where Kirby basically is like, Why would I make a change? And I just think my head wants to explode. What is wrong with some of these football coaches? I don't understand. But Kirby, probably much to Tyler Rummery's chagrin. Uh, Chagrin is not looking like right now he's going to make the change that needs to be made to see if they can win a national title. And if he squanders this one, it's really hard to imagine him having a better chance given what the state of college football likes this year. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen with them, but that was that was a, a limp to the finish in the second half. Two picks by sets and Bennett in the second half when the moment was big and it mattered. And you're, you're not going to make a change there. I well, don't get it. So on one hand, you could look at this and say this was not a failure of the offense, right? It was in sure. some sense, right? If they scored 24, you'd think they'd win. But Right, so they're going to have to go back to the drawing board. Obviously, they can play better than they did in this game, right? Clearly. Um, so I'm not totally writing them off, but I love it that they're going to stick with Bennett because I think what they you that love should— that? Well, I love it because they're going to lose. Okay, I was going to say. <laughs> got it, got it. I really love it. I hope they squander this because, as you said, this is theirs for the taking. It's wide open. There's no other team. When you looked at the playoff, it's like Michigan, 
They're going to eat them up, I think. I, they should. On paper, they should. Right? The Michigan's sure. fairly one-dimensional. Now, very. Michigan is a very good team. I think sure. actually be a pretty compelling game. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of that possibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it looked like they're going to draw Cincinnati, crush them, and then get Alabama, who we assumed, you know, if they're better than Bama going to that game, they're going to win again. What, who has anything to offer for them? But, yeah, wide open now. Wide open. Wild. I mean, really, that that's why you play the football games. Mm-hmm. But obviously, this was what we kept saying. We said it coming into the Florida game. We said it every time we talked about Georgia. This is the same program that that anointed JT Daniels the starter. He was the starter. The last game he played at Vanderbilt, he's 10 for 11. He's taken out in the first quarter because he's on fire, lighting them up. Then he pulls his lat, and he's done. Makes no sense. Well, here's their chance. Right? If you had a coach understood this right okay we've got a little bit of window here before this playoff game we have got to make a change because i think we're gonna have to win a shootout against alabama we're not gonna win a shootout so why not give yourself the best chance to win and we've said this before a he was your starter b he's by far the more talented player c you want to give your team a new piece of belief Mm, yeah and that gives you a new piece of belief it's something different from when you played them before which is a nice motivational pull. It's also just the right thing to do, but it doesn't look like right now Kirby's going to do it, and that is the definition of stubborn. And I love it. Okay, Cincinnati is close for a while against a very game Houston team. They pull away in the second half and win 35-20. to 20. Yeah, relatively comfortable win despite the fact that they were battling back and forth. They were controlling the game, and they've done it. He's done it. Luke Fickle's done it. He's climbed this mountain, and now his reward is to play Alabama. Which for him, I think, is the best of all scenarios. Yeah. Because if you want to make yourself into a coaching legend, you find a way to beat and Alabama. This Alabama team is game. vulnerable, obviously. I mean, Auburn essentially beat them two weeks ago. And Luke Fickle, a defensive mastermind, yeah. I think he fancies himself here in being able to slow them down. I mean, I'm looking forward to it. I love the matchup. I This is what I've wanted. I want something interesting. Even if Bama destroys them, I'm interested in seeing this go down. For sure. Michigan... Just absolutely crushes Iowa forty-two to three. I mean, Iowa had no hope. Yeah, I don't know what I was thinking taking Iowa. That I was don't either. Incredibly dumb. Ten and a half points. I figured maybe a slight layover. Yeah. That was wrong. That was dumb. We said they were either going to have crossed that hump, which is the more likely situation. Again, you can outthink yourself, and then just move themselves into the confident stratosphere, which is what they did. This team is amped up. They fancy themselves. They certainly aren't afraid of anyone. I do think they get a very bad matchup with Georgia, given that Georgia is maybe the best run-stopping defense in the country. I say maybe only because the Alabama game exposed them, but that's primarily in the air. And Michigan cannot throw the football. They only want to run the ball. And I do not see Michigan running the football in Georgia. So I think it's going to be a tough matchup for them. But we will see. Yeah, it's a bad draw for them for sure. Pitt puts the clamps on the old Demon Deacons. Great season for Pitt. They win their first conference championship because for a long time they were independent they went 45 21 great season for Pitt. i ne- if you had told me pat narduzzi's team is gonna light up the scoreboard i've been like what what happened is he in a coma and someone else took over just a crazy year for the acc all around and Pitt is the acc champion well and i think it makes sense like both of these teams were the best offensive teams in the acc right and they both had quarterbacks and Pitt has an nfl quarterback and that's what led to i think the success there, of course, I had to pick Wake Forest here. I really love the story. Great season for them. I hope Clawson sticks around there for a while. Okay. USC and the little nightcap. 
just limps to the finish against Cal. We put picked USC for some reason. I'm not sure. I think it was right, Alan. They turned the ball over. They missed two field goals. They turned the ball over like three times. They had a fumble seven. And even then, at the end, if they just score a touchdown, they cover. Right. I mean, I, th- I still think it was the right pick. But either way, they could not get out of their own way. And they, they, they don't get anything. They get a loss and frustrating fail. Okay, got a couple of coaching corners. Just for a us. couple here. All right, so App State. We've seen this before, but it got brought up on Twitter again. And I'm going to keep mentioning it because I think you're going to keep seeing it. App State was down 24 to 16 with five minutes left in the game, and they went for two. And a lot of people thought again, why would you go for two? We have covered this. Yeah. The mathematical answer is that your EV is higher to win significantly so by going for two there because if you get it and then you score again, which you have to anyway and you kick the extra point, you then win the game. If you just kick the extra points, you can only tie the game. So you have no chance to win, right? Now, all that being said, you do, and I know at home you're thinking this, you do increase your chance for losing the game. But you gain more on the win side than you do on the losing side. So essentially, if you pull those two things together, you gain more by going for two, potentially twice in a row, and risking a little bit of extra loss than you do by not doing it. And that's why it's the positive expected value play. You're going to see teams do this more and more and more because again, it makes a heck of a lot of mathematical sense. I will continue to say there are certain situations where I think you should be exploitative and not do it based upon momentum because you do still increase that losing rate. You gotta be careful with it. But all in all, it is the best expected value move. So you will right. see that. So more. I think and I'm going to sound like a curmudgeon saying this, but I understand the math on it. And I'm not someone who's great at math, but I understand the math on it. I still don't love it. I There's all the other stuff that people are slow to embrace, like going for more and forth down, punting less, things like that. And I'm like, this is so painfully obvious. This is one where I still don't trust it. And so... I don't, especially in lower scoring games like this, right? That you're not guaranteed to get another touchdown. Well, if you don't, then you lose anyway. That's true. But I think in terms of, like like you said, momentum and psychology of the game, there's something to be said for that. So Yeah, for sure. And, and I've done this. We've gotten this battle with JT on my text thread before because I, I totally get it's the EV move, but I've been arguing that there's times I wouldn't do it. He's like, that's crazy. It's the highest EV. And we've talked about this on the show expected value works really well when you get a lot of reps mm-hmm. right so baseball it's great because you get a lot of reps over the course of a season in football the odds that you even get a scenario where a it happens are small and then b you're taking the math of every single two-point conversion every college team has done over five years not your own team not how good you are at it not how good the defense is at stopping the stuff you want to run there's a lot that goes into it so my argument to jt was you can't just do something that has the highest dv every time if it doesn't apply to your certain tactical situation if your team just sucks at going for two because you don't trust your quarterback or your offensive line is messed up or who knows what the case is then don't go for two right you have a try to tie the football game yeah sure because on. the ev difference is still pretty small like you gain like right and off the top of my head, I can't remember, but you gain like basically an extra win. If you play like a 12 game season, you did this every single game, you have a chance to win, you gain one extra win and you basically have like half of an extra loss. So you gain plus, you know, 0.5, half a game, but half a game, depending on how you utilize that, it's the difference between something and, and nothing. Right. And so I think you have to be careful. It's, it, it would be automatic. As I told JT on the thread, it'd be automatic if you were like getting plus two wins 
and you're getting like a quarter of an extra loss, that's a layup. Do it every single time. But if you're talking about half a win, I think that it is the highest EV move, but it's not such a slam dunk that you blindly do it every single time. So that's, I think, the difference. So it is nuanced, Alan. I think think you're justified in saying, I don't know if I love that, but that's why you're going to see it. People are going to do it. It is the highest EV move. All right, USC loses their starting quarterback from being knocked out and concussed. Their backup quarterback comes in on third down, completes a pass for eight yards, making it fourth down and goal from the three-yard line. So they can get a first down, fourth down and goal from the three-yard line. So fourth and two. Essentially correct. Not goal. Fourth and two, which I said and then didn't say. Fourth and two from the three-yard line. They're down 10 in the third quarter. Their kicker's already missed from 43 and 51, but this is an absolute chip shot. They go for it. They don't get it. Do you like them going for it here, or would you rather have them kick the field goal and make it a one-score game? I know what you're going to say, I think, with the rule of scores here, but the length of the field there, like you can kick a field goal from much further out. So the distance of the field goal matters. Now, again, their kicker has not been performing well. Honestly, I I probably would have done what they did. So – We've talked about this quite a bit. The rule of scores is my predominant factor, but this is the one where you overrule it because when you're that close to the end zone, as we talked about, the EV of you scoring a field goal anyway is super high after you get stopped and they Certainly. punt. And there's a lot of time left. So this is a time-dependent move. This is There's still like eight minutes left in the third quarter here. There's two. There's plenty of time to get stopped, stop them, Kick your field goal later, and you're fine. It's worth the point risk that you're taking by trying to score there. Now, if you watched the play, you would have thought it was not Don't worth do it. it. Yeah. USC ran a basic, just a draw up the middle and got stoned for like a loss. <laughs> so it didn't look good, but I'm in favor of going for this one as well. Also, if you kicked it, I'd be fine. But I think in that case, you're thinking I have a backup quarterback. I may not. I might not get back this close to the end zone. If I can try to steal a score right now, I can probably find a way to get in field goal range. I think that's a thought. I like that thought. All right, that's that for the coaching corners. Daytona Steve, RIP this season. He finishes going 0-17 for his parlay because his lock of the week, which he said he wasn't going to pick a lock of the week, was Georgia, which he backed up the Brinks for. And look, tough, tough loss. We've all been there. If you've done any sports gambling at all, it's a very humbling thing. Daytona Steve finishes the season 4-9 and nine on locks and 0-17 and on parlays. If you've faded his locks, though, you are a very happy better. So you are welcome. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, a little news for Florida program. Uh, some of the staff, coaching staff and I guess larger support staff is starting to come through. 
Um, so they've announced that, again, as the time we're recording, there could be some more that uh, have come up. But um, Napier is bringing two people, two on-field coaches with him from the Louisiana staff. Some interesting guys here. One, maybe a more obvious one, running back coach Jabbar Jaluke. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. Um, guy with a long track record has worked at LSU with a lot of high profile guys worked, um, with Elijah Mitchell, who's now with the 49ers. If you play fantasy football, you're aware of him obviously. And known as a recruiter. So it seemed like a guy they might bring with him. Well, I'll just stop there. Thoughts on him. Well, I think that we talked about this, like why, why was Jaluke let go of, of LSU and, we don't really know, but Ed Orgeron basically fired him, which there could be a million reasons why that happens. Obviously, he was there with Leonard Fournette. I think what matters is a lot of the guys he's worked with or coached have made it to the NFL. So there's clearly something there. And obviously, Billy Napier, you have to give some level of trust to your new coach. This is not a head scratcher. He's worked with him. Eliza Mitchell, who you mentioned, is really truly like an absolute diamond in the rough success story in the NFL right now saying this past Sunday that he was so prepared for the NFL by playing at Louisiana. So if you're adding up all these dominoes, like looks pretty good. Uh, But I think this hire on paper makes a lot of sense. If you're going to bring just two guys from your staff and we talked about Billy Napier, please don't go the Mike Norvell way and bring your whole staff. Then this one I think was the most obvious of all to bring for sure. So I'm totally fine with what's Already going on Already coaching the SEC. Again, Correct. if you want to bring some people, the guys you would want to bring are guys who have coached that level or fit the profile of the guy you would want to hire anyway. So he was probably overqualified potentially to be at Louisiana and considering, you know, with his previous work experience. So I think this fits the kind of guy you want. Again, so I think it's helpful to bring some guys with you who know what you want to do, can help you implement some of the things that you're wanting to do. Some of your culture pieces, some of your tactical pieces, right? And yeah, you don't want to make the mistake of bringing everybody. I think it'd also be hard to bring nobody. Not that you shouldn't do that, right? If you don't have anybody on your staff you think can work at the next level, this is a benefit of bringing some people with you. Okay, the next guy is really interesting. Patrick Tony, who now has the co-DC title. I'm assuming he's bringing that with him from Louisiana and coaching the safeties. He's like 31 or 32 years old, young guy, very kind of weird background in terms of not a former player. I don't think right. Unless we couldn't find his playing background, very young for a guy who's been a defensive coordinator now for, you know, I think three, two to three years at Louisiana. They've been, you know, successful at that level. Thoughts on him. He's really interesting. So I knew nothing about him aside from the fact that he's he's been the D.C. there at Louisiana. Their defense, as we mentioned, has done really well this year. First in the conference, ninth overall in the FBS, uh, top 15 in a bunch of metrics. But this guy is a total wild card. I mean, he grew up in California, you know, went to went to a, a small school out there, Palomar College, didn't, I guess, didn't really graduate a couple years later, then graduated from South Southeastern Louisiana University which he went there to volunteer football coach, worked in high school for a while, eventually gets picked up by Napier because he coached in that conference. And then, you know, now is, is what Napier says is really a rising star. But I like it from this angle. We've talked about this a lot. 
football is a game, much like anything else in the world, that can be understood by anyone. And a lot of times innovation comes from people that did not come up through the system. This is true in any field. If you look at who innovates, oftentimes it's not somebody who was academically trained or brought up in, you know, the system. Not that not that Patrick Tony didn't grow up playing football his whole life, but just not the traditional sort of look at this guy's resume. For him to be a co-DC at Florida, this is a eye-opening, head-scratching move that requires full trust in Billy Napier. Now, he's going to be the co-DC, which means he's going to hire a named guy for sure, which makes us feel much better. But everything about Patrick Tony is that he's, he's, he's like very much like a football play calling field reading kind of you know savant so to speak again not nothing in his background would would indicate he's a savant he didn't go to stanford he doesn't look like a savant didn't seem like a savant but the results on the football field have been excellent for him that defense got better every single year with this year being their best so that's improvement on the field you want to see their defense is multiple they run a bunch of different stuff it's very tactical which fits billy napier's mold and it would make sense, Alan, if you're Billy Napier and you're a process-based guy, that you want to have a guy who's been around your process with whoever you hire as a new DC in year one, right? That makes sense. So I'm going to say you have to trust the coach on this one because it's not a name you're going to get excited about, but you also have to appreciate what I think is going on here, which is the process. It's a guy on the defensive side of the room that understands what Billy Napier wants, from his players, attitude-wise, etc., and then when he hires, presumably the big name DC, who's going to have a lot more of, I think, the directional role. He's got a guy in Tony who has the ability to kind of be a Napier on that side of the ball, making sure that's how we do things. Here's how we want to do things. Here's the culture we want. I think that's what's happening here. But again, if you read that, you're thinking, who the heck is this guy? He's 31, 32 years old. He has no pedigree or resume to look at whatsoever. And is that horrible? Time will tell, but the results have been good. Again, in, in a conference they played football in that's competitive, they were first. And he was a defensive coordinator and it was solely his job. So that's some proof, but maybe not the major proof you're looking for. And he's not the head DC. So for me, Alan, if he was the sole DC, I would be hammering the panic button. Horrible decision. You cannot do this. You cannot elevate another guy with you like this. That's not what's happening. So let's wait and see who the other co-DC is before I say anything else. Yeah, this is going to be a blend. Anytime you have co-DCs, that's interesting to me. Like, what is the structure like? How do they work together? I'm intrigued by him. And the fact that Napier really trusts him and brought him with him, right? He didn't have to. No one would have blinked if he had just left him there, right? I kind of love it. It could be disastrous, right? It's a boom-bust kind of a thing. And it's interesting, I, my hesitation is a little bit, if there's a guy you want to hire who's an all-star, is he going to be okay being co-DCs with this guy? I don't know. Maybe, I mean, the best version of that person would be, right? That'd be humble enough to be like, yeah, I'd love to work with this guy. He's an innovative guy. Let, let's work together. So I don't know. Does it scare off any potential candidates that we would have wanted? And maybe... Maybe it's fine. Maybe Patrick Tony is so good that it doesn't matter. Um, we'll see. We could be very thrilled with the defense. This is like a management personality hiring process, and we haven't watched Billy Napier do this yet, so we don't have a lot of data. Right now, it feels fine to say, I 
trust you. We got to the point, Dan Mullen, where we said we don't trust you anymore. I don't have any reason to distrust Billy Napier with this, um, but it's definitely a wait and see. Oh, for sure a wait and see. But again, this is where you have to give your coach process-based guy a little leeway, but not too much leeway. Alan, you and I famously had some conversations about some Jags drafts back in the day mm. where they were so off the reservation that, you know, I remember us discussing, look, you can only go so far. Like when your head coach is doing things or your GM is doing things that are like so at odds with everyone else, either they are by far the smartest person ever or they're actually an idiot. And I think in this case, this is this is a nod to the blend. We are saying, hey, he trusts this guy. He has had performance on the field. It right. has really happened. There's real data there. And we're going to get someone else. And now we have to get the right fit, which is also tricky. Again, look, I'm going to be real. If I'm a DC, I don't want to be a co-DC because I want to be able to have the influence on my DC. I don't want to have to make blended decisions with another defensive coordinator who may not share my vision. So we talked about this before. They're going to have to find a vision aligned defensive coordinator. But Mm -hmm. one thing I do like, and I've been saying this, I'm extremely biased towards young defensive coordinators because they're way more tactical with how they coach defense. That checks the box for me. But again, if he was a sole DC, I would be pulling every alarm bell there was. And this was not the right thing to well, do. Well, th- this gives you also the freedom if you want a guy who fits as a higher level recruiter and developer and maybe was you know not the most forward thinking tactically. That could be an incredible marriage if you find that guy. And maybe Patrick Tony's a great recruiter too. I have no idea. That's not what people speak about him first, you know, in the very limited data we have on him and research we have on him. Okay. Anything else to say on him? Nope. Okay. Uh, The Nick Savage era is over because Napier imports his strength and conditioning coach, Mark Hawk. Has a decent amount of history working in various places. Again, I don't know. I (laughs) I don't have a running databases on strength and conditioning coaches, but... Seems to fit the general profile. And again, you have to go with Napier here, I guess. Well, Bama guy, right? right. So that's simple. For sure. Like he obviously preferences some of the guys he was with at Bama and Mark's one of them. And this is like what we mentioned with Mark Mariotta. Um, Mickey bl- Mariotta. Mickey Mariotta. I just I was like, why would I say that? I don't know. Um, blending Mark Pantoni, a guy I went to high school with. He was like Urban Meyer's right-hand man at Ohio State. And then um, Mickey. Anyway, Urban always said that was his guy. And he followed him everywhere he went right and i think that's what mark hawk has become to billy napier and we said if he didn't have that guy stick with savage if he does you got to stick with the guy that you trust so nothing wrong with that all right and they announced a couple of other hires i mean an analyst there's gonna be a lot of these analysts i guess ryan o'hara which is good so this is something to get used to as a florida fan if you're reading offensive analyst quarterback analyst ryan o'hara and you're like oh my gosh who is this guy like what the heck is he coaching quarterbacks he's not an on-field coach so Bama, of course, you get the famous press on the guys that are not there, you know, right? Bill O'Brien last year, other guys, Sarkeesian analysts, was a Sarkeesian, analyst, analyst, you know, Will Muschamp, analyst, and then he left for Georgia, you know, whatever. All these guys, right? Analysts, analysts, analysts. But the reality is these guys are going to be more and more as the years go on at Florida to where you're not going to really care who the analysts are, but they're going to help the program. Ryan O'Hara is a guy who, interestingly enough, Alan was a three-star quarterback in his own right. He started at Arizona on the football team as a quarterback. And he also played basketball for them. So athletic guy. And one of the guys that's been working directly with quarterbacks for Billy Napier. So this makes sense. I have no problem with this. It's a guy you trust. You've gotten great results. Keep it going. And they also announced a director of recruiting football logistics. Um, we don't know who this person is. I, I can see his name in front of me. I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but I think it's just the, the reason I would even mention that is just 
it's a nod in the direction of he's valuing this and is already putting in place the infrastructure for recruiting and logistics, which Correct. is super important. Another Bama, for another Bama guy. Right. This guy went to Bama. It was like a walk-on wide receiver there. You know, I think he went to finance and did some other stuff. But again, like this is way different, right? I like this. Here's what I like. I, I went on the I went on this very podcast and said, if football coaches operated more like businesses, they'd be finding talent in non-traditional areas. Because all that matters is what's your mindset? What do you think about? Do you know the game? Do you understand your job? You don't have to have put on pads and played tackle football to do certain functions that exist in tackle football. So, Especially tactically. Correct. I like that. So I love having a director of recruiting and football logistics that also, A, by the way, played at Alabama, understands what it's like on that side. Even though he's a walk-on, he still gets it. He's from Florida, from Ocala. So... I think these are these are tactical decisions. You could find justifications for everything that's happening here. Sure. I mean, I don't think Florida fans normally would know the name of this person. No. So it doesn't really matter doesn't except matter. for you see him prioritizing putting this in place. Correct. And we're going to find out again. Big names have to come down the pipeline. So we will see. So wait and see if you're freaking out. I don't know who these guys are, what's happening. Just yeah, wait and see. These are just press announcements. Yeah, we have plenty of on-field guys to hire. Now, if we wind up with a bunch of nobodies, then I will be pressing the panic button. Let it be known. I don't think we're going to, but let's right. wait and see. So these are the guys I'm sure that he had already identified in his process a long time ago and had, hey, whatever job I'm taking, you're coming with me. Absolutely. All right. A little playoff discussion here. Number one seed, Bama versus Cincy. We've talked about this a little bit. Michigan versus UGA. You know, I I wouldn't have thought I'd be as intrigued by this as I am, right? Because it feels like we're just going to get playoff redux you know you're gonna get bama georgia again which is most like most likely outcome but i don't know i'm looking forward to watching these games oh Maybe I i'll am. be regretting that statement by halftime but no but I, I still am at least you have new blood new blood in cincy new blood in michigan you get it you get a um a threat on the three-year test it's always kind of fun right jim harbaugh trying to say hey screw you james your yeah three-year get out test here, james. Is, is garbage i'm gonna become the anomaly and then you get a heroic baseline test passer in Cincy, and then you get two three-year test passers in Bama and UGA. So lot to watch for here, uh, and obviously something different. But yes, most likely it's going to be UGA and Bama. And again, why should we not be surprised by this, Alan? Those are the two most talented rosters in football. And have the biggest infrastructures too. And they also have the biggest support system. So we're going to keep saying it, but if you're burying your head in the sand as a college football fan, which I think most Florida fans have not been, they've been clamoring for top recruiting for a long time. I think we all get it. I think even a guy like Scott Strickland, who was perhaps a little asleep on it in the beginning with the Dan Mullen era, is no longer asleep on it. He hired the best up-and-coming recruiter in the entire country, and I think that's why. It's because, again, here you are, those two teams have the most talent. Now, it doesn't mean they can't lose because they can, and that's why we're going to watch these football games. But I'm excited about Allen. It should be fun. Obviously, too much time, in my opinion, has to pass before these games are played. I really don't like that aspect of it. I think it leads to worse football. But I'm excited about the matchups. And, you know, people who are like, say, I don't want an SEC you know, rematch. It's rigged. They're overrated. Well, if they beat these other two teams, they'll have earned their spot in the title game. And you can't really say anything about it. No. This is what this is how playoff brackets work. Yeah. Yeah, claim that, right? Again, if you're Oklahoma State and you're upset, don't lose to Baylor. If you're Ohio State, don't lose to Michigan. And right. if UGA crushes Michigan, don't cry that it's rigged because you got smoked by Michigan. So, I mean, there's no excuse here. It's going to be even less of an excuse when we get to 8 or 12 teams. But even now, this season especially, 
Notre Dame was so unimpressive mm-hmm. for four or five games early on. And even at the end, they started beating teams better. But they, I don't think anyone would argue they're in the hemisphere. Now, I'd be the first to say put them in a playoff. I hate ruling them out because 20 people in a committee say they can't be in there. But we have four slots, and I don't think you can complain about the four teams that are in there. Right. This is, it feels very clean, right? I do like how wide open this is that we could have gotten some very different results with the 12-team playoff. Yes. So that the, I would have taken that though. Yeah, I would have loved it. Yeah, and I've I've been the one who was hesitant to move to eight. And again, I, the eight plan with all of the, um, you know, formulated seating, whatever, guaranteed bursts and stuff. Again, that doesn't do a lot for me. The twelve team model they came up with that they're now stupidly halting on. It seems great, and I'm I'm actually really looking forward to it. I wish we had it in place next year. Yeah, I do too. So, it's a great model. Yeah. yeah, that's classic though for them to stupidly put the brakes on something pretty much everyone wants, including coaches for right. the most part. And that the teams that are slowing it down, ACC, Big Twelve, Pac twelve, they don't have any teams in it. It's crazy. It's crazy. All right, who can know? All right, James, close us out. That's it. That's all we got. Short episode here. Two hours plus for us. (laughs) Yeah. Even though we had no football games to talk about. Oh, Anyway, we hope you enjoyed the content. As always, Alan and I love making it for you. We will also be back next week where we will set the stage for the bowl games. We'll give you all of our bowl picks. We'll talk about Florida's game. Of course, we mentioned this not at all, but here we are mentioning it against UCF, a riveting matchup versus Gus Malzahn, perhaps. Uh, Rumors are... briefly, how do you feel about it? Yeah, I mean, I don't care. I mean, I, I think I'm sad. I've heard rumors that Anthony Richardson is not going to play because he's getting some sort of elective meniscus surgery, which I hope is totally false. But if it's not false, then I, I go from like, I like to watch him play to I don't want to watch it all. I can't handle it anymore. I don't care. But I don't care is the real answer about this one. I especially just don't care about this one. Does, yeah, I don't want to lose to UCF is the only thing. But Oh, I don't want to lose. Don't get me wrong. But also, does it really matter? But if we're playing like Iowa or whatever, it's like. Yeah. The okay. UCF, you're right about that. Okay. I take it back. If it was against any team that losing to doesn't matter, I really don't care. I don't want to lose to UCF because UCF fans are the most delusional fan base yes. on all of planet Earth. So good point about that. And hopefully Florida will not lose. But look, with Emory Jones at the helm and no Anthony Richardson, we know what that looks like. Yeah. So, I mean, anything is possible here. So not looking forward to seeing that road show again. But we'll talk about that next week. We'll talk about all the other stuff that probably happens this week. We'll keep you informed. As always, send us any kind of message you like on any format where you can reach us and we will answer it and get back to you. Thanks for the support. Thanks for the feedback and enjoy another wonderful week wherever you are in the world in the wonderful month of December. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.